You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 140 of the Common Descent Podcast. This episode is on horns and antlers. Both of them. Yeah. And maybe some other stuff. Yes. And we we will be discussing <laughs> these head armaments, horns, antlers, and a couple of other groups of head structures that animals have adorned themselves with. These are very popular in the animal kingdom and serve all different kinds of crazy functions for the animals that have them. So we will be discussing them, talking about what they are, like what is a horn versus an antler and versus the other things that you see sticking out of animals' heads. Who has them? What do they do? Who had them in the fossil record? As well as what's some of the questions we actually still have and are still investigating about these strange head structures. There's always more mysteries. Oh, yeah. So we will be discussing that this episode. It's going to be a ton of fun. It's a much more complex topic than you might suspect. But we are also going to be discussing it because it was requested. This topic was asked for in one form or another by Jennifer, Jonathan, and Kyla. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, I will had so much fun looking this one up, so thank you very much. <laughs> now, before we get to our discussion, we have some announcements. Our first announcement, as always, is that we have a Patreon. Yeah, we do. And that Patreon funds everything we do here at the podcast. Top to bottom, it keeps our lights on. It keeps our podcast running. And if you sign up there, you get all sorts of bonus goodies, bonus news, bonus discussion, bonus notes about the episodes. But also, if you sign up at a certain level, we will shout your name out in gratitude. And the names we have to shout out in gratitude today are Rebecca, Philip, Frisbee, and Jackson. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for your support. And speaking of support, uh, there are many ways people support us. You can comment, you can... Send us money this way, but also we have a mailbox. We do. It's in the episode description. And every now and then we get some cool pieces of mail from our listeners. And we got some cool pieces of mail recently. We're at, not actually recently. These are a little bit older. But <laughs> we got mail from Elizabeth, who got us some Jurassic Park stickers. Very nice. We got uh, one from Jackie, who gave us a gift card to Amazon, which was very thoughtful. Very nice. And we got a piece of art from Rin and Trin that was of a dinosaur walking in the rain. Which was supposed to reference one of our episodes, and they asked us we, to guess. We were challenged to guess. And the closest I could come was either trace fossils yeah, or... episode 118. The When we discussed those footprints that preserved raindrops. Right. Uh, Which has come up a couple times. Yes. So feel free to reach out to us and tell us we're wrong. Did we do it? <laughs> <laughs> As always, you can get in contact with us the many, many ways that we mentioned especially at the end of the episode. Yeah. And in the episode description, tons of links and info. In other announcements, we are coming to the end of May, which means we are coming up on the beginning of June, which means we are coming up on Croc Month. Yes, as we announced at the beginning of the year, this year we are going to be celebrating our inaugural Croc Month in June and Snake Month in July. We are very excited. We know a lot of our listeners are very excited. We are going to be doing a whole bunch of croc and snake themed stuff over the course of these two months. The themes of crocs and snakes you will hear finding their way into our main episodes, as well as our bonus Patreon content and stuff like that. 
Also, we'll have a bunch of special posts about Crocs and Snakes on social media throughout June and July. We're also going to do some special stuff on Discord, so if you're on our Discord, keep your ears and eyes out for that. We also will be releasing a pair of bonus episodes with special guests to talk to us about croc and snake conservation. Very exciting. We're excited for everybody to get to hear those. Absolutely. And finally, back to the subject of Patreon, we are going to be launching a limited time special tier on our Patreon. And anyone who signs up at that tier, the subscriptions, the pledges we get at that special tier during the months of June and July, will contribute to charitable donations we will make at the end of the summer towards conservation efforts geared towards crocs and snakes. Yes. So if you are on our social media, if you're on Discord, especially if you are on Patreon or you've been thinking about Patreon, the next couple months are going to be a whole bunch of stuff to keep your eyes out for ways to engage and be part of this and interact with us. And finally, at the end of all of this stuff, back by popular demand, we will be reinstating the Croc and Snake poll. Yeah. So stay tuned for more details on all of that stuff. <laughs> to finally again decide who's best <laughs> until the next time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so check out, keep an eye out for all of the updates for that stuff. Also next month, we have a couple of silver screens coming out. Yeah, two, actually. Yes, because Jurassic World Dominion is releasing next month. Yep, we will be doing a silver screen science episode for that. But also, coming out this week that we're recording this, is Prehistoric Planet, the, the new, new documentary series. Exactly. And this is something a lot of people have been very excited about. We're very excited about it. So we will be doing an episode and discussion on that series after it's done. So stay tuned for both of those in June. And with that, we can wrap up the announcements and get to our first official section of the episode, the news. Every episode, we like to gather up science news from paleontology, geology, evolution, biology, things that have been happening recently in the scientific fields, and give it all to you to keep us up to date and keep you all up to date. David, what's our first news? Well, since we're on the subject of head ornamentation, uh, the first news I've brought is about saber-toothed cat teeth. Ooh, all right. Yeah. Specifically, a reevaluation of the life appearance of these cats and their teeth. Ooh, fun. This is research by Mauricio Anton et al. Oh, uh, hey. Yeah, Mauricio was here not too long ago. We know Mauricio. <laughs> in the journal Quaternary Science Review, and we will link in the blog post where all of our news links will be, to an article in Smithsonian Magazine by Sarah Kuta. Saber-toothed cats, very famously, are ancient cats that had very long canines. We talked about them a bunch in episode 93. Sometimes those very long canines could be up to several inches long. Yeah. They're thought to have been used as precision instruments, uh, perhaps for slicing through the necks of big mammals, things like that. Traditionally, when we are thinking about artwork and the way that we depict these animals... Saber-toothed cats are often depicted with those teeth sticking out of their mouth. Yeah, hanging out. Yes, at like a walrus's tusks. Mm -hmm. You can see the teeth. But from time to time, this interpretation has come under question. There have been a variety of discussions in paleontology about, well, would they actually stick out of the mouth that way? Or would they somehow be covered up? Yeah, we don't see that very often in predators, especially among mammals. Yes. That their teeth just hang out of the mouth. This study 
puts together a bunch of different forms of evidence to try to come up with an answer to this question. The researchers examined well-preserved fossil skull material of a saber-toothed cat called Homotherium latidens. This is a very famous saber-toothed cat. It's not Smilodon, the famous, famous one from here in the Americas, but it's a pretty famous saber-toothed cat. I think this is probably the, the second most common name I, I think of hearing when I, I think of saber-toothed. Yeah, probably true. This particular specimen is from the late Pliocene of France. Homotherium had the big canines a few inches long, so certainly longer than the things we see today. They examined the fossil remains. They also examined dissected remains of modern big cats, Ooh. the skulls, the jaws, and the lips. So they did some modern anatomical studies. And they observed footage of modern-day big cats doing a variety of things with their faces. Oh, like the yawning, actual... growling, like looking at tigers, lions, jaguars, and what do their lips and teeth do? While in motion. While, yeah, exactly. While they're opening and closing their mouth. That makes me very happy. <laughs> uh, and in the article we'll link, uh, there's actually a quote from Mauricio who states that how this whole project started is that he saw a video of a lion yawning and noticed that when he closed its mouth, the lower lips folded around the long canines oh. and got him thinking, oh, okay, well, I didn't realize that happened. Mm -hmm. Let's look into this a little bit more. And indeed, Mauricio and other authors have done studies like this before that have concluded that Homotherium and other saber-toothed cats would have had exposed canines. This study, the big change in this study is that they are using this live footage, this understanding of the living relatives in motion. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, Mauricio Anton is a world-renowned paleo artist. So yes. he's not just a researcher, but his whole specialty is reconstructing the life appearance of ancient animals. Yeah, he came here and taught a class about it mm -hmm. uh, for a bit, and it's it, he's really good at what he does. Yes, and if I remember correctly, I believe his favorite animals are saber-toothed cats. Yes. <laughs> So here's what they noticed. In living big cats, so tigers, lions, jaguars, the ones we have today, the lower lip has a multi-layered structure that allows it to fold around the bottom of the canines. So the long upper canines, even if they're pretty long, the lips will fold around it as the jaw closes, giving it a nice little place to sit. A little pocket. They also noted, by looking at the comparing skull materials and soft tissue, that in Homotherium, this extinct saber-toothed cat, or scimitar-toothed cat, as they are sometimes called, yeah. the lower jaw is broad. The, the mandible itself is pretty broad, which leaves very little space between the jaw and the canines that hang down on either side of the jaw, which they suggest probably doesn't leave a lot of space for soft tissue to fit in between them. Yes. Right? If your canine is hanging down past the lower jaw, your lower lips have to fit underneath the canine. They have yeah. to be between the canine and your actual jaw. They noted that there doesn't seem to be a lot of space there for lip tissue to be in between the tooth and the jaw. So their suggestion based on this study is that this type of saber-toothed cat would not have had exposed canines unless the mouth was open wide. Okay. But when they close their mouth, even though their canines are like three inches long or something, the lower lips, if they acted like modern big cats, should have been able to wrap around to create a little pocket 
for even those long canines to fit in, even though the tip of the canines is all the way down to the chin. Yeah. Wow. Which is really fascinating because that is different from what these own authors' previous work had suggested. Yes. They are saying, hey, we've looked at new evidence and we think we were wrong previously when we concluded the teeth would be exposed. That's that's such a, like, that's so cool to see researchers do. That's, yeah. That's very cool for them to be like, well, we, we double-checked our own research but with new information and... Mm-mm. No, it sure does seem the opposite is true. Yes. (laughs) And this is really important, not only, obviously, for artistic representations, having a better sense of how to accurately portray these animals. Yes. But it also gives us a better sense of what they were doing while alive and Mm -hmm. what sort of things we can expect their mouths and teeth to have been doing or to have been exposed to. This fills in our understanding of what these cats were like. Well, and I know that one of the big questions that comes up whenever we talk about what prehistoric animals' lips were doing in relation to how exposed their teeth are is that teeth, especially like our teeth, react if they are exposed to dry air. Yes. Like if our teeth, if you hold your lips open for way too long, your teeth will start cracking because the enamel is not dry out. It's not meant to be exposed that way. Air and light. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that can change the teeth. So if they were exposed, that brings up the question of how were they able to be exposed? Yes. But if they weren't exposed, then that question isn't important. Now, another interesting note in the paper is that the, this, these authors conclude that the case was probably not the same for all saber-toothed cats. Fascinating. That certain other saber-toothed, like Macaritus, for example, which is another very famous saber-toothed cat, they suspect it was similar to Homotherium, that those, came, those long canines would have fit inside the lips. But they specifically mentioned Smilodon, the mm-hmm. famous Ice Age American saber tooth cats, likely had exposed canines. Mm-hmm. And the reason they think this is, number one, because the canines are way longer. Yeah. Smilodon, that's several inches of canine, which yeah. goes well past the, the bottom jaw. Well, they're one of the record setters for yes. the length of canine. <laughs> but also they point out that Smilodon's lower jaw is much narrower than in these other saber-toothed cats, which not only, in theory, would leave room for the lips to fit between the teeth and the jaw, so that there is there is actually space there for lips to sit comfortably mm-hmm. without having to wrap around the teeth, but also that that narrower jaw structure is something we see in certain modern animals. They specifically mention musk deer, and walruses, which are modern animals whose big, long upper teeth are permanently exposed. Yeah, they do have the classic view of a saber tooth sticking out. Yes. So they suspect that Smilodon, even given all of their sort of revisions of these other saber tooth cats, some saber tooth cats, they think, would still have actually had exposed canines. Which totally makes sense because this was a wide, diverse group. So, of course. Of course, some of them are going to be doing something weird, even among a weird group to us. And what I like so much about a study like this is number one, and the authors do make this point, it emphasizes the importance of doing studies on living animals, yep. both dead and while they are active, but also. We did a whole episode back in episode 64 about paleo art, Mm -hmm. and it is so easy to get the impression that paleo art is a bunch of people guessing about stuff. It's really exciting whenever we get to see an actual scientific study, 
a published, thorough analysis whose conclusions directly inform how we depict and artistically represent ancient animals. Yes. That paleo art, when it is done thoroughly and accurately, is just as much part of the research of the science as any of the other things we're learning. Absolutely. Another favorite thing for me about this is the fact that one of the big things that adjusted their view and conclusion was the live videos. Mm -hmm. And that happens all the time with modern animals (laughs) and just modern physics. That when we film something in a way that we hadn't before, or when we just pay attention to it like we haven't been, new things are revealed all the time just by being like, hey, has anyone noticed the way its ankle moved when it did that? What's happening there? (laughs) And now we slow it down and go, oh, yeah, actually something very unique is happening. And it can open up the understanding just because we're seeing it differently. Nothing, no new technology, no new, just we slowed it down and paid attention. Yep. And it is, it's something that we can do in modern times that wasn't nearly as easy mm-hmm. the farther back you go, where now, now I think they said in the paper that they did actually get new footage. Yeah. Like they actually did go and record uh, these animals. But if they couldn't have done that, they could have just gone on the internet. Yep. <laughs> like that. What an incredible resource we have now that you can watch documentaries or movie footage, or just, like, YouTube videos of people at the zoo. There is so much of this data available just for looking at animals moving in real life. Well, it's similar to what you said about uh, paleo art often just seeming like it's people just making art, but there is research often connected to it. Mm -hmm. That slow-motion video is often just seen as a cool effect, but it is actually most really good slow motion cameras are for scientific purposes, right? not movie purposes. <laughs> like the one that the slow-mo guys use on YouTube, those are scientific cameras Yeah, for studying things in a way we cannot see any other way. So I, this kind of research is tons of fun. That's so awesome. Also, one last note about this news. I noticed that the Smithsonian Magazine article that we will link to references a New York Times article about the same thing. And the title of the New York Times article is something along the lines of uh, research finds that we've been drawing saber-toothed cats all wrong. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to gripe for a second about misleading headlines. Yeah. No, we haven't. It's no. just the teeth. That's it's literally teeth. not what they said. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's just that the teeth are covered and they're not. Yeah. And, and they even said, probably even some of them did look like how we've been, like... Right. That's not at all what they said. Which is one of the reasons. The other is the paywall. But that is one of the reasons why we are not linking to the New York Times article, (laughs) but instead to the Smithsonian Magazine article, because the headline's better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also speaking of organisms' heads, Mm -hmm. specifically the origin of the vertebrate head. Oh, yeah. We do all tend to have heads. We do. And this research was looking at where did it come from evolutionarily and found a genetic connection to something that you that you might not expect. Oh, you'll never believe what they found. This is research by Vasilios Papadogiannis et al. in Nature, and the article is by Carly Casella in Science Alert. So when we think of the typical animal body plan, it has a head at one end, which focuses most of the neurons where our brain and sensory organs are. Right. Certainly for us vertebrates. Exactly. And that's the thing they're looking at the vertebrate body plan has that focus but before vertebrates that's not how body plans were organized right 
at some point, a head had to form. Right. Think of tunicates and starfish and all sorts of other animals that don't have that setup. Yeah, they don't have a front and a back. They have just nerves throughout the body. And it still can be centralized, but it's not centralized at a head. So this research was looking into where evolutionarily would the origin of the head be found. Whence the head? Exactly. They did indeed look at tunicates or sea squirts. When you see these, they typically look kind of like a sponge anemone kind of thing. They sit Mm. there. They've got holes in the body to filter water in and pump it out and catch the food. They don't have a head, but they do have a nervous system. They do have nerves throughout the body and clumps, just kind of bundles of neurons. Ganglia. Yep. But that's in the adult form. The juvenile larval form of tunicates are very tadpole-esque. They're kind of fish-shaped. They do have a distinct front and back. Head and tail, kind of. Head and tail, kind of. And they have nerves running along the back. Not quite a spine, but kind of a spine and they do have nerves focused up toward that head a cranial ganglion kind of and many scientists have often pointed to them as potential examples of what early vertebrates might have looked like that our earliest ancestors might have been these semi-fish kind of headed kind of tailed organisms this has been debated they're not all scientists like using them as an example of our ancestors uh but there are some evidence that there is evidence that supports that idea. And this research was working from that perspective and found what seems to be more supporting evidence. They looked at the genes and found a specific gene, the HMX gene, which encode for a pair of neurons in the tunicates tail. This gene they found was related to a, another set of genes that code for clumps of neurons in a lamprey's head. All right. That's a vertebrate. That, that's a vertebrate. That there's a kind of fish. Exactly. Lamprey are one of the jawless fish that are still around today. They are the one that's kind of eel-shaped, but then has that leech sucker mouth at mm. the front. Super weird. We talked about them a little bit in episode 134 because they are bloodsuckers. And they are often looked at for things of vertebrate evolution because they are one of the remaining jawless vertebrates. Yes, very basal. Which all vertebrates started out with no jaw and then a group evolved jaws and gave rise to the rest of us. So they are often used and very helpful for trying to understand what early vertebrates might have been like. It seems that this HMX gene is homologous, that it has a common origin and is present in two very different parts of these two organisms, both of which potentially have a connection to early vertebrate evolution. And in fact, when splicing the HMX gene from a lamprey into the tunicate, it does code for the tail neurons. So taking that gene from lamprey and taking it back to the tunicate codes for the neurons it coded for in the tunicate to begin with. So it It, does seem a similar function in both organisms. That it truly is almost the same gene set Mm -hmm. in both, which means that the genes that code for the neurons in our head might have been repurposed from the tail neurons of earliest vertebrate ancestors. Ah. If the tunicate is indeed similar to what our ancestors would have been like. Genetic studies like this are a lot of fun because they often are like this where it's just zeroing in on 
the corner of the genome that has the answers to these early evolutionary questions. Because it's uh, one of the things that is, of course, always confounding with genetics is that there are the genes don't have labels on them that say this is what the gene does. We have to observe genetic activity in a developing organism or we have to do little gene splicing experiments to go, all right, this is what this gene does in this organism and it's a similar function to this. So a study like this doesn't say, here is the gene that is responsible for heads. Yes. But it does say, here is the section of the genome that might have the answers to these evolutionary questions because it seems to fit some of our expectations of how, if tunicates and lampreys both share a vertebrate ancestral origin... It's doing things we might expect it to do. Yes. So let's keep looking in this direction. Exactly. And uh, this is research, as mentioned, that could very well have some strong opposition. Sure. If there are people who go, no, not tunicates. Right. Stop that. <laughs> let's try this with a different living organism and see if we get similar results. And it could turn out that the gene's still doing what we expect, or it might turn out that this was a weird situation and something else is going on. But... Yeah, a, a very odd connection between some of the genes that code for what would eventually become our brain, the neurons of the head. Interesting. Yeah. Well, sticking with the theme of heads and indeed the episode theme of head ornamentation, my second bit of news for this episode regards hadrosaurs and ceratopsians, Ooh. which are two groups of dinosaurs that, as uh, we all know, had Often wacky head ornamentation. Very ornamented head. That is also the last we will talk about their heads because this research doesn't actually have anything to do with their head ornamentation. But I appreciate the segue. But hey, that's we're tying things in. Instead, this is research about the climate preferences of these groups of dinosaurs. Hmm. This is research by Anthony Fiorillo et al. in the journal Geosciences. And in the blog post, we will link to a press release on phys.org by Rob Boyce at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. This research focused on dinosaur assemblages from three different latest Cretaceous formations in Alaska. The Prince Creek Formation, the Lower Cantwell Formation, and the Shignik Formation, all of which right at the end of the Cretaceous, so in the 80 to 70 million years old or so time period, and all three formations preserve lots of hadrosaurs and ceratopsians. Hadrosaurs, the group that are often called the duckbill dinosaurs, this is your Edmontosaurus and things like that, and ceratopsians, episode 87, your horned dinosaurs, the group that includes triceratops and styracosaurus and all of those things. In fact, these three formations, with their abundant dinosaur fossils, make this region, as the authors put it, the richest known Cretaceous-aged, high-latitude terrestrial ecosystems. Wow. So this is Alaska. So we are way up north, and all uh, three of these formations have been estimated to high paleo-latitudes. Yeah. So back in episode 122, we talked about how we use paleomagnetism to estimate the latitude of an ancient formation. In this case, all three of these formations had ancient latitudes between about 80 and 60 degrees north. So these were hot way up north. Yeah. And plots of dinosaur specimens, rich ecosystems from high north ancient environments. Cool. And since they have 
rich ecosystems, lots of evidence, and they're all in about the same place and roughly the same age, the researchers thought this is a great opportunity for us to compare these sites and see what is different and what might be causing any variations we see in the dinosaur assemblages. Specifically, they looked at climate. So they examined evidence from the paleo soils, specifically uh, isotopes from plant remains and minerals in the soil, as well as, I believe, leaf shape Ooh, cool. yeah. analysis, which is the kind of thing that Ali does, yep, yep. interpreting ancient temperatures and precipitations using plant and mineral evidence. They came up with estimates for annual average temperature and precipitation for all three formations with, uh, I'm not going to go through and list each of them, but the mean annual temperatures ranged from about 5 to 13 degrees Celsius and precipitation ranged from about 600 to 1200 millimeters per year of precipitation. That sounds like pretty cold and dry. It is It is pretty cold and a variability of, yeah, certainly drier than what we're familiar with. Yep, yep. But they also found that the abundance of the different dinosaur groups varied with the climate conditions. Now, it's not a perfect correlation, and we're only looking at three sites, but they did find, for example, that there was a statistical correlation between their climate estimates and the abundance of certain dinosaur groups. Neither temperature nor precipitation seems to be the driving factor, although precipitation had a stronger influence than temperature did. Generally speaking, they found that the hadrosaurs were more abundant relatively. Hadrosaurs were always more abundant than ceratopsians, but in terms of the percentage of their assemblage, hadrosaurs were more abundant in the warmer, wetter climates, and ceratopsians were more abundant in drier climates. Interesting. They also noted that the two sites with more hadrosaurs were coastal sites, whereas the other site that had the most ceratopsians was more inland. Hmm. So it seems that some aspect of this climatic variation affected how large the local populations of ceratopsians versus hadrosaurs could be. That's neat. This also lines up with some previous studies that found similar things. Of course, the reason for this is probably not uh, just, you know, the temperature habits of these animals. It's probably linked to the plants that they're eating. Yes. These are large-bodied herbivores. The authors also point out that something they don't investigate really in this study is the amount of sunlight that the environments are getting, which is a, a factor when you're way up north. We talked about that in episode 114. If you are in Arctic regions, you sunlight becomes much more variable. Oh, yeah. At certain times of the year, it is at a premium. Yes. Which would also affect plant growth and plant abundance. So this is sort of preliminary results that find that there is a statistical correlation between certain climate factors and how, basically, how happy different groups of dinosaurs were to live in those environments. Very, very cool. It's always neat to get this kind of uh, uh, life habit info about dinosaurs, just because it it informs what, like, you know, if you were to pop in time machine-wise, where you popped in would really change the likeliness of which group you'd be seeing more of, and that's that's always neat. Also, just the, the note of that the Ceratopsians were tending more toward the inland and toward the slightly drier in this cold place really has them now pictured in my head like bison. 
Brain. Like herds of bison moving across <laughs> a cold, slightly drier, open inland area. Like, oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, this kind of uh, result, this kind of understanding of what climate parameters affect what animals live in a place. We you talk about this all the time in modern stuff. Mm-hmm. Because some organisms have very specific requirements. And when environments change, those are the factors that are most important to understand when trying to predict how different animals are going to react to it. In the case of dinosaurs, the big question in the latest Cretaceous always comes back to the end Cretaceous mass extinction and understanding how different ecosystems were changing throughout the late Cretaceous. If we can start to get a sense of what local scale climatic shifts or environmental shifts were happening and we understand which groups of dinosaurs preferred what kind of environmental features, that gives us all sorts of additional power to understand how these ecosystems changed over time on smaller and smaller scales, which is pretty exciting. Well, and similar to what you were saying about the paleo art in your first news, that it just gives us a more accurate view of this organism, um, these organisms. This feels similar to me that it, it... is very often so easy to be like, yes, these dinosaurs were found in Alaska. All right, well, yes, but not uniformly. Right. Like, you can't just say Alaska had these dinosaurs in every square inch. It's kind of like Georgia has American alligators, but but not most of it. Right. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you need to go to the right places to find alligators. If you're up in the mountains, you're not going to find alligators. Right. Same thing was true with dinosaurs. Exactly. Well, speaking of crocodilians, uh, <laughs> I mean, Croc Month is pretty soon after this episode. I'm comes getting out. so antsy. <laughs> My next bit of news is about a new fossil crocodilian, specifically a cousin of the false gharial. All right. Oh, that's fun. Right? I know that you have a soft spot in your heart for false gharials. I really do. <laughs> this is research by Tobias Masson et al. in the Journal of Systematic Paleontology, and the article is a press release by the University of Tubingen and Phys.org. This new species is Maumingosuchus acutirostris. It is a Tamistamine, which Tamistama is the genus of the false gharial today. Yes, one species, false gharial, all sorts of confusion. Yes. So today it is grouped with the true gharial, the Indian gharial. Both of those are grouped in the Gavialidae. That could change any moment. Because right. <laughs> other research has waffled back and forth on where the false gharial fits in crocodilian phylogeny. Yeah. Is it a relative of the gators, the crocs, or the gharials? Yeah, a few years ago, like when I first started the my graduate program studying this group, they were grouped next to the crocodile, the, the actual crocodiles. So now they are currently with the gharial. This new specimen is from the middle Eocene, about 39 to 35 million years old. It is from northern Vietnam. And it seems like it was a roughly four meter specimen. Wow. Yeah. So that's impressive. Decent sized. Going on 15 feet. Yeah. That's a good size. That's that's close to a similar size of today's false gharial. So that's cool. A similar size and is almost completely preserved. Like the whole skeleton is represented basically. Nice. This is exciting because it's part of this long snouted group, uh, a well-known feature of this group is that they are today very skinny snouted but also ancestrally many of them are skinny snouted typically associated with fish eating but not all of them do that this though also gave insight into the 
history of dispersal of this group. So based on other fossils of related crocs, it seems like they had their, their origins in North Africa and Western Europe and Southern, Southern Asia, somewhere in that region mm-hmm. is when we would have seen the origin of this group. Of this Tamistamine group of crocs. Yes. It's believed they likely originated right 50 million years ago. Probably more in the North Africa European side of things. Okay. And that they dispersed to Asia. This new specimen is helpful for a couple reasons. One, it seems to be the oldest representative of the overall gharial group in general in Asia. Oh, that's cool. So this is the earliest member found in Asia, which means it was likely one of the earliest to disperse into Asia, where they are now found in the they're found in that southeastern Asian region of the world. And based on this additional information, it seems like they likely dispersed multiple times into Asia. It was not a one-time event. And they proposed at least three dispersal events. Oh, wow. Throughout time of them independently, groups moving that direction. Moving eastward. Yes. But this would place that the earliest dispersal was sometime in the Eocene, 39-35 million years ago, with this species. Cool. This seems to be a recurring theme. Well, it is an even broader recurring theme that anytime we have a simple explanation for something, the, digger, the, the deeper we dig, the more complicated the answer turns oh, out yeah. to be. But specifically with dispersal, the way that organisms have spread across continents and across the world over time, I feel like I've seen a lot of research in the last few years revising previous hypotheses of this group of organisms started over here and then at some point a branch of this diversity moved over into this other part of the world with new evidence that says actually that happened multiple times. Yeah. Or they went back and forth a few different times and that it wasn't just as simple and clean as started in A, some stayed in A, some moved to B, and that was the end of the story. Which is, of course, not at all a surprising thing to find over the course of 50 million years there's plenty of time for all sorts of complicated dispersal patterns to happen. Well, dispersal is such a fluid aspect of evolution and history of a group. You know, because when it comes to, like, features, those are going to change typically very slowly, and you can you can track it, you know. But if you're just dispersing, like, major amounts of dispersal can happen in just a short number of generations. Like, if things suddenly become ideal and go, oh, wow, there's a land bridge connection that wasn't here a hundred years ago. Well, in three generations, we can just all move, <laughs> like <laughs> a ton of our species can move over there and a huge dispersal event can happen in extremely short times. And then that land bridge goes away for some reason. And then everyone that moved over there dies. Right. <laughs> and that dispersal <laughs> happened and then came back and then happened and then came, like, it's something that can happen very fluidly and quickly. We see it with groups of animals a day of armadillos moving north in North America as things get hot and then a cold winter comes down and kills them all mm-hmm. and bumps them back down south. So it makes sense that it was something that would happen very easily if the opportunities arose. Yeah. Also, always fun to see Temistema and its relatives in the news. Yeah. That's a pretty cool croc. Yep, 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 yep. And with that... We will wrap up the news. It's been a, it's been a news full of animals with good, cool heads. Yeah, let's continue that theme, I think. Let's talk about what are horns and antlers 
specifically, you know, what do those words actually mean and what animals do we see wielding such head ornamentation? We got a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah. Now, this episode is titled Horns and Antlers. It sure is. But there are more things that grow on animals' heads than horns and antlers. Also true. These are the two most famous and two most uh, well-known and often studied of what is often just described as headgear. Right. So headgear is anything that is protruding off of an animal's head. Yeah, an ornamentation yeah. on the, the head, the cranium. This also can include things like tusks. So you'll mm. see tusks included in uh, among lists of headgear. Yeah. Which sometimes are not on the cranium. They're right? on the mandibles. <laughs> <laughs> but they are coming off the animal's head. Elephant tusks are often pointed to because those are doing a lot of the similar jobs. Mm -hmm. As you'll see, as we'll discuss, horns and other headgear doing. But headgear includes these types of structures there was one study I have to mention before we keep going that was discussing these kinds of bony structures in animals, specifically things that grow in the skin and then fuse to the skeleton, which right. is what a lot of headgear does. Mm -hmm. And it was specifically looking at antlers, horns, ossicones, which is another form of headgear. Yep. Osteoderms, those bony armor in the skin. Yep, which we get in lizards and gators and such. And the os penis and os clitoris. Oh, yeah, the Baculum uh, episode 53, and yeah. then its counterpart, which we also discussed a little bit in episode 53. Yep, yep. And the paper said then <laughs> that here on from there out, these will be referred to as ahoos. A-H-O-O-O. -O -O. Antlers, <laughs> horns, ossicones, osteoderms, and the osses. <laughs> ahoos. Ahoos. So that should be the name of the episode. <laughs> I, I found that paper, and I went, I'm not going to pull much from this for research purposes, but that title is... Like, golden eventually when we do an osteoderms episode we will then group all of these together as the ahoos episodes yes, the ahoos. <laughs> but this is to say that headgear is incredibly diverse it takes all sorts of shapes and sizes and structures like the actual what they're made out of is very very different across multiple groups by far though the most famous group when it comes to headgear especially among mammals but even arguably just among animals, are the artiodactyls. Yes, our even-toed, hoofed mammals. Yes, these are ungulates, but specifically we are looking at the group ruminantia, the ruminants. These include your bovids, your deers, which are all of your, like, cattle and bison and... Sheep and goats and all those. Yep, yep. A bunch of our farm animals. Mm -hmm. Deer, giraffes, and their cousins are all in this ruminant group. This group is extremely well-known for headgear. In fact, almost every group, every subgroup in it has headgear. There are six groups. Only two of them are missing headgear. One of which is the mouse deer. The other is the musk deer. The mouse deer is outside a group known as the pecora, which includes our deer, our bovids, our giraffes, and the pronghorn, which we'll talk about in a bit. The musk deer is within this overall group. They're closely related to the bovids, and it's thought that they likely lost theirs. It's not that they... Gotcha. <laughs> that must, don't musk deer also have little tusks? They do. So, <laughs> so they're they still doing some head ornamentation. Yeah, so they still 
could be considered to have head gear, just not cranial appendages, right, which not is horns or antlers. Exactly. Or yeah. Exactly. <laughs> In the pecora, the, these ruminants that have cranial appendages, headgear, they're usually f- located on the frontal bones above the eye, with some also having horns on the parietal, so a little further back, and sometimes even in between. With, oh, cool. In the so middle of the along skull. Along the, the, the line mm-hmm. between those bones. Yes. Though one of the really interesting things with this is that each of the main groups has their own form of headgear that is unique to them and distinct from all the others. It is actually really odd how distinct they are from one another. Bovids are the ones you typically think of when we say headgear. These are horns. Or like on a bison. Like on a bison, like horns. on a bull. Like wildebeest. All of your gazelles, these are horns. Now, specifically, if we're being sticklers for definitions, these are true horns. Right. These are actually horns. When you are looking up definitions, only if it is a horn found on a bovid is it a horn. Right. It, it's only a true horn if it comes from the Cape Horn region yes. of the Tierra del Fuego. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> You'll often see studies refer to everything else that's not in these ruminant groups, but on other animals, as horn-like structures. Right. Which is weird because I'm sure a number of our listeners are already thinking of animals that have horns that are not mm-hmm. bovid mammals or even not mammals. Yes. And we'll discuss some of those, but mm-hmm. if we're being strict, true horns are only found in bovids. These are two-part structures. They have a bony core, what's often called the horn core. This is bone coming off the skull. This is the support to the main structure of the horn. It is then covered in a keratin sheet. So keratin like your fingernails, like hair. It is specialized hair follicles that grow into this hardened horn covering. This is the sharp part, the actual outer part of the horn that you see when you look at a bull or so on and so forth. In this group, they are also typically unisex. They are found in both males and females. Right. Usually. There like are a cow can have mm-hmm. horns. But exactly. There are groups where only males have horns, but even in the groups where both have horns, typically the males are bigger. Right. The females are almost always sporting a lesser pair of horns, a less ostentatious set. The next most famous are antlers. Which are not horns. Which are not horns. They are different. These are in your cervids, the deer and all of their cousins. Deer, elk, caribou, all that group. Your Uh, moose. Moose. Yeah. Moosin. These are also two-part structures, but they don't have an inside-outside. They have a bottom and a top. Ah. The base of an antler is called the pedicle. Right. So on the deer's head, there are two bony bumps that when they're you know, fleshed out, when you're seeing them alive, they'll just kind of look like little flat circles, little bumps mm-hmm. toward the back of the head. On the skull, they are little... Little a little platform. Little almost. platforms, like a tree stump. Right. If you see a deer skull out in the woods, you'll see these little plateaus on the back of the skull. That's where the antlers attach. Exactly. These are where the antlers grow from. The antler is that branching, intricate, ornate structure that comes off. One of the key things here is that the pedicle is permanent. The antlers are deciduous. Yeah, they come and go. They shed every year. So they have to regrow their antlers every year. While they're growing, they are covered in skin. 
The pedicle is always covered in skin. Antler is covered in a velvet. This is the skin that covers it. It's full of blood vessels and glands to help grow the bone. That then as the antler finishes growing, the velvet will be scraped off. Right. And this is why you can find images and videos online of moose or deer with just like this bloody mess hanging around their antlers. That's the skin coming off. It's real gross. (laughs) And we should just to reiterate and reinforce, these are animals that grow an entire new bony structure every year. Yes. There was one historical article that called them improbable appendages (laughs) because of how ridiculously fast they grow and the fact that they're shed every year. Like no other huge body structure of a vertebrate is treated this way, functions this way. This is like if you grew another arm every year Mm -hmm. and then it just dropped off when you were done with it. At their highest rates of growth, they can reach daily rates of 27 millimeters, a couple of centimeters, but still a day. Bone growing a couple centimeters a day. Yeah. That's That's insane. That's a lot. These structures are also male structures. Mm -hmm. Deer, pretty much, males have antlers, females do not. There are a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, it is a male feature. Now, those are by far two of the more extreme and complicated of the headgear for the ruminants. Giraffes have something called ossicones, which are the, the easy version. These are baby's first headgear. <laughs> These are very simple. Ossicones are just horny bumps, two little horns on the back of the giraffe's skull, sometimes a third one in between. Right. If you look at a giraffe, it's got the big ears on the sides, and then there's usually a pair of what look almost like other ears. Yep. Like just these two protrusions in the middle. The reason they look kind of like other ears is because ossicones, while they are horny, they have a horn core-esque. Right. It's like, bone. It's bone, just like a bovid's, but it's covered in just... Skin, just normal skin. Skin and fur. Just the normal furred skin of the rest of the body just covers it with little tufts at the end. And that's it. You'll also find ossicones in okapis, cousins of the giraffes. They look kind of like a shorter striped giraffe. Sometimes their ossicones will poke through the skin and it will be Mm. a kind of sharp horny tip at the end with just the skin pulled back. It's just exposed skull bone poking out of their head. Yes. (laughs) That's not what you want. (laughs) Right? There's a sentence for you. <laughs> so an ossicone is just a, a sort of just an extension of the skull. Yes. That is just covered with skin as well. It's not bone protruding from the head like an antler is. Mm-hmm. And it's not covered in its own special sheath like a true horn. No. Now let's mix them all together. The pronghorn. So <laughs> <laughs> just any, there's always a delightful point of the conversation when you're talking about artiodactyls yep. where you go, all right, we've covered the basics and now the pronghorn. <laughs> so the pronghorn, Antelicapra, which is a single species here in North America, mm-hmm. it is the only species in its group. Yes. Not really a deer, not really a bovid. It is its own thing. Yes. These have structures that are often called pronghorns. Like, they're named after their headgear, or vice versa, whichever way you prefer. These are a weird kind of mixture of all three other structures. Yeah, pronghorns are also, often you'll hear them called pronghorn antelopes. Yes. Because they look, I mean, picture like a mountain goat or an antelope or something. That's basically what a pronghorn looks like. For all of our listeners who are not in North America or who have not seen a pronghorn. Definitely look these up. These are one of my favorite animals. They are very cool. They're probably close to my favorite artiodactyl. They're so weird. 
these horns, these structures have a horn core that is a bony protrusion coming off the skull, all right, over the eyes, very much like a bovid. It is then covered in skin and fur, very much like an ossicone. Sure. But that skin and fur grows a keratin sheath, a keratinous sheath, like a bovid. Over the skin and fur? Yeah, the, the fur grows into that and hardens. Oh. Because that keratinous sheath will then be shed annually <laughs> for then them to grow a new one for the next season. What? Yeah. <laughs> This I didn't is, know any of that. This is why they're just their own thing. So they are they really are just kind of doing all three things at the same like, time. While they're in use during their mating season when the males are gonna be button heads, it looks like a bovid horn. It has a bony core with a keratin sheath that has the sharp parts. Right. But then it sheds the sheath like shedding an antler, but it is still covered in fur and hair. Like an ossicone. Like an ossicone, and that fur and hair will grow the next sheath. That will then be used again. Pronghorns are so weird. It's bizarre. That's super cool. <laughs> <laughs> now, in all of those groups, these are paired structures. So right. two horns, two antlers, two ossicones. There's a left one and a right one. Yeah. There are situations, some male giraffes will have a third ossicone in the middle right. of That's the, the one that has all the psychic powers. Yeah. And it will be bigger in some species, so it's a notable feature of that group. But typically, it is paired. There are some examples of four-horned bovids, <laughs> which is just too awesome not to mention in this episode. So this is a condition known as polycerati, multiple horns. It is extremely rare in modern-day ungulates. Typically, it is seen in domestic sheep. Okay. So wild sheep are horned. The males are horned, females aren't, but they're always just two horns. There are a number of breeds of domestic sheep that have developed four horns, likely due to the domestication process. Right. Evidence seems to show that that probably showed up early in their domestication. I think there's the earliest evidence I was able to find was a at least sheep-like thing from 6,000 years ago. Wow. That showed evidence of multiple horns. So this is a weird... This isn't like some modern species has evolved four horns... Over the course of its evolution and it's doing something weird with them. This is a thing we did. Yes. <laughs> to some animals. Absolutely. And basically what happens is when the horn is growing, it starts as cells in the skin that then will fuse to the skull. If that bud gets split, mm -hmm. you will have multiple horns. So this is like if you grow multiple arms in a frog. Yes. Same basic principle. This can happen to other species. You know, you'll see misgrown horns that will have more than one coming out. Mm -hmm. So this can happen if something happens developmentally, you can get an extra horn on one side. These breeds tend to do it on the regular and uniformly. Like the it looks normal that they have four. They don't look misshapen. There is one wild example today, the four-horned antelope, aptly <laughs> named. Yep. Tetraceros quadracornis, aptly named, <laughs> is one of the smallest of our Asian bovids today and has four horns, uh, two pairs, one in front of the other. These are little sharp horns. They're nothing ridiculous, but there are four spikes coming out of their head. And it is it is the only wild can situation where this happens naturally. In the modern day. In the modern day. Yes. Very cool. Now. Those are the artiodactyls. Those are the famous headgears. Like true horns, antlers, and horn-adjacent things. Yes. 
the the other headgears of their close cousins. But as you mentioned, there's a ton of things out there that we call horned, mm-hmm. or we talk about having horns that are not quite the same structures or may serve similar purposes, but are from different groups, so therefore are not true horns. These include a ridiculous variety of structures from a huge, diverse uh, list of groups. One of the most famous that would get included, because it is an ungulate, are rhinos. Yes. They are also horned, but it's on the nose, Mm -hmm. not on the cranium, and it is just pure keratin. There's no bone there. There's no bone. Yeah. We talked about the structure of rhino horns back in episode 129. So absolutely go check that out. That'll give you a better introduction. There are some, though, that are very similar. The Jackson's chameleon. Yeah. So chameleons actually are commonly have head structures. Yeah. A lot of lizards will mm-hmm. have, because lizards often will have osteoderms, and horns sometimes function similarly to osteoderms, yep. in that they are bone that grows and then fuses to the body, the, the skeleton underneath. Absolutely. And you will get lizards with this headgear, sometimes soft tissue headgear, famously. But yeah, these chameleons have horns on yep. their head they have three horns two adjacent to the eyes and one on the nose basically a triceratops basically a little <laughs> tree climbing triceratops <laughs> with an elastic tongue and these horns are bony cord with keratin sheaths basically a bovid that's a bovid horn yeah <laughs> just convergently evolved in a lizard so this is one of those situations where if you're just taking the definition of the structure this is a horn this would be categorized with true horns if you just told people it's bony core with keratin sheath. That's permanent. Both of those neither shed. Mm-hmm. Permanent structure. This would count, but typically it does not fall into the... It won't be called a true horn. Right. And it's certainly convergently evolved. Yes. <laughs> this is two groups that evolved the same kind of structure. Yeah, these are very distant groups. <laughs> There's also weird ones. There are some birds called horn screamers. Yep. That have a keratin spine that is loosely fused to the skull on the top of their head. So like a rhino? Kind of. Sort of a rhino bird? It's like, it looked almost more like a hadrosaur crest, where it's kind of coming up and back a little bit. Weird. I didn't find any explanation for what it's for. I assume it's just display. (laughs) Yeah. But there is kind of a horned-ish, there's a head-geared bird. Cool. Say the name again. Horned Screamers. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> These are also, there's also like the cassowary, which has that helmeted head. Mm-hmm. Which is more of a crest. Which is definitely more of a crest than a, a headgear structure. But this is where you start getting into that, where you draw the line between what is right. headgear. And in this episode, we draw the line at the title of the episode, yep. which is Horns and Antlers. <laughs> <laughs> by far, though, the one that's most often called horn, that is by far the most divergent from true horns are beetle horns oh yeah tons of horned beetles stag beetles rhino beetles the scarab beetle group almost Mm. every group has a horned member and some are the majority of them horned they have these long spiky horn-like structures coming off of their carapace and a lot of them are really impressive yes like big long antler style body giant horns it's crazily diverse and exaggerated and they're used in their competition with one another so they are extremely similar style structures 
but not at all made out of similar material, not coming off of similar parts of the body since they don't have similar parts of the body. Yep, or similar material. <laughs> yep. So it is a vastly different way to make the same shape of anatomy. Yeah. So th- there's a bunch of horns in nature that are some very similar, some very different from true horns. Yeah. And of course, as I'm sure many of our listeners already have in their brains, there are plenty of fossil examples of horned things, which we will discuss, I'm sure, in a bit. Yes. Now, why? Why do all these animals put a bunch of sticks, grow a bunch of branches off their head? What's with the long head? What's the deal? Why? What are they using these for? This is not going to be a surprise to most because it is what we think of when we see a horned creature is that you're going to fight with it. Most horns are used for some form of competition, Mm -hmm. typically male to male. That's by far the most common use of headgear structures is for two males to sidle up and compete. Right. Lock heads. It may be to literally physically lock heads or hit each other. It may be display. My horns are bigger, yeah. and you, you posture until one of you walks away. So it could be a ceremonial competition, and the antlers are the ceremonial weapons. But that is by far the typical use that is seen in most headgeared organisms. And it also makes perfect sense alongside what you said before, that for the most part, these tend to be either only present or more exaggerated in males. Yes, they are very often sexually dimorphic. Because they're the ones doing those kinds of competitions for territory or for mating opportunities or whatever. Even on our non-Ardiodactyl groups, Jackson's chameleons, only the males have horns. Mm. Scarab beetles, typically only the males have horns. So it is a competition between two males, usually over territory, typically for mating rights. Mm. So either territory for... I, the females in this territory are mine, or sometimes just competing over this female. Right, that fat individual over <laughs> yes. there, let's fight. Yes, exactly. <laughs> to see who gets to reproduce today. So that is very often the driving, the, the assumed driving force behind the evolution for most of these structures. But there are other uses. Predator defense sure. is the next most common you will see. If I've got a bunch of spikes on my head, well... I, I can use this for more than one thing. And if you're going to try to eat me, I'm going to put these spikes in your face. Yeah. And that might stop you from eating me. That sure is convenient. And that's handy for predator defense, but also for defense against basically anything. Yes. Especially if you if it's a very territorial animal. You know, like, like yeah, a lion might be a problem. But also, yeah, that wildebeest is getting too close. Yeah. Or if those zebras are getting too close and you don't want them to bug you. This is what always comes to my mind first when we think about rhino horns. Yes. Uh, which, as we've discussed, are not horns in the true sense. But that the image that is in my head is rhinos fighting off basically anything that gets too close to a rhino. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of the research that I found was noting that rhinos don't actually use their horns on one another very often Mm. it is typically a posturing with each other and if they use it on someone else it's then you're bothering me right so i'm going to use my weapon but it is not commonly that they are actually budding or trying to stab one another now you do see different ways these headgears are used even when it's competition like there's different forms of combat we mentioned the display but even in direct combat it's quite diverse 
Antlers, which are branched and complex structures, are typically used for wrestling. Yeah, you lock together, and then you're pushing and pulling and twisting. Exactly. You're trying to tip the other one off balance and gain the upper hand in this melee. You also see ramming horns. Just your head, my head, bam! Bang. (laughs) Whoever passes out first loses. (laughs) Bang! And that's it. And you see this with the bighorn sheep, but there's also ones where there's a mixture where we will hit and then wrestle and then hit and then wrestle. So you'll see a variety of combats. There's also a bunch of complex forms with antelope that will have locking horns that do not branch. None of the bovid horns branch like an antler. They're all a single shaft. Right. They're either straight or they're slightly curved or sometimes they're very curved, but it's one path. Yes, exactly. But they will have knobs and ridges so that they can still lock, Mm. so they can still wrestle. You'll also see ones that are basically fencing with each other, where it's less of a wrestle and it's more of parrying, trying to get around each other's defense with your long saber-like horns. It's really, really interesting how different each headgear organism uses it. I was in a museum many years ago. I think this was out in South Dakota where they had a, a display that was two... I think they were elk. It was two elk skulls. Mm-hmm. Of elk that had gotten their horns inextricably interlocked and then died that way. Yep. So it was two skulls still entangled with the the antlers all twisted around each other in this museum because someone had found the skulls that way. Yeah, just laying in the forest. Yeah, these combats can be incredibly dangerous. Like, yeah. headgear is a weapon. This is meant to do damage quite often. There are some groups where it is much more display. It is not meant to actually be used as ceremonial. Right. Like giraffes aren't using their ossicones to poke each other very much as no. far as I know. But they do. They're using their giant <laughs> ridiculous necks yeah. to try to hurt each other. But the, the ossicones do play a role in their combat because they will swing. The males will swing their necks at each other like a mace. And if they get it just right, those ossicones will just come in and act as pointed ends Mm. like the spikes on a mace so it's not gonna stab you but it's like getting hit with a golf club versus a baseball bat right (laughs) it's just a little pointed (laughs) uh, because drafts are crazy they they, guess they are so headgear is incredibly diverse and we've discussed its many many uses and their many forms but there is one somewhat mystery that applies to basically all of them and it's why do some females have headgear and others don't? Mm. What is the driving force? Why is it beneficial, we assume, for some females to be horned, but then others don't have them? And for the ones that do, what benefit? Yeah. If you're not fighting each other like males are over females, because they're already fighting over you. Right. What like, are... like grow and maintain this structure. Exactly. And there is no single answer. There is no definite reason. This is a bit of a mystery, especially because you have a different answer basically for each group that you could look at. This question was so obvious that it was brought up by Darwin. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> as to why do why do those horned females have horns? Like why does that cow have horns? He even put forth that it either it means there's some value or maybe it's just that it is so valuable to the males and there's no selective force against it for the females that they just 
still have horns. It's just kind of built in. Yeah. If you are this species, it develops. Well, that reminds me of the discussion of why do men have nipples? Yes. Right? <laughs> They're not doing anything yeah. in this half of the population. And I, there's, there's, I've read lots of mm-hmm. that discussion, so I'm sure I don't remember all of it. That at least has been one of the suggestions is that it's just part of being a human. There's no need to get rid of it. Yeah, that's just there. So we just still have it. Now, there are many, many other hypotheses that come up. Some have to do with if it's a extremely gregarious species, if they herd in large numbers, the females may need to have similar body size and armament just to find their place in the pecking order. Gotcha. Just to just to maintain their rank in the overall group. If it's a giant group, it might be that it's just... You, you can't be tiny in this big group because you're going to get literally trampled over. If you're a itty-bitty wildebeest with no horns and no one's looking out for you, <laughs> bye! <laughs> so that you just see in groups like wildebeest, everyone's big, everyone has horns... It just, it just is a good thing to be when you're in having to try to keep up with that many other animals. It may also be for situations where females have to compete over resources with each other, mm-hmm. you know, to give food for their young. Right. So if I need a patch of grass for my babies to graze on, I need to chase the other female and their babies away. So that I can have this area. So right. there isn't always a big, strong male wildebeest around to secure grass for you. Or they may be too busy fighting each other. That's true. <laughs> they, they made the kid. They're done. That, yeah. <laughs> they helped, but they were going to help. They're with. off to make more. So it may be that females have to compete with one another to make sure that they're getting enough food to grow the babies. Sure, and sure. then that the babies are continuing to be fed properly. It could also be to help protect their young. Right. Just fight. Just the same thing we were saying before. Fighting off competitors, fighting off predators, fighting off anything that is a danger to you and those near you. And then you also have situations where there might be something else going on. There was research that found in African buffalo that in both males and females, horn size was indicative of parasite load. Huh. Healthier individuals, fewer parasites meant bigger horns. So it may just be good to have horns as a female because it also tells everyone else important information about yourself. Yeah, that is a display. Well, when you were saying pecking order, that's what it made me think of. Just this is a display. This is the biggest, strongest female in the herd. You can tell because of those big old horns. It's like as humans, your paycheck speaks no matter who you are. (laughs) If you got a big old paycheck, everyone listens a bit more. Yeah, it may just be that it doesn't matter male or female. This is a good display for some reason. For those groups that don't have horns... The question has been brought up of, is there something that's hindering them from developing horns? And one of the suggestions, especially for deer who would be growing antlers every year, is that it may become competing for nutrition. Right. That you're having to use so much nutrient and calcium to grow antlers each year, you might not have enough left over to grow a baby. Right. Whereas if you have a big horn, you're only growing a horn, your pair of horns once. Yep. So maybe it's not as big a deal. All right. By the time I'm an adult, those horns have already grown in. That's done. Antlers are very expensive yes. metabolically. You're continuously growing them. And not only are you growing them over and over again, you're growing them very quickly. Yes. And very dramatically. And they're typically getting bigger each time you grow them. Right. Like through so, the yeah. life of a deer, they get they grow back bigger and more ornate each time to signify your rank. Yeah, this is my fifth pair of antlers. This is a level 10 antlers. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you have to 
get enough nutrition and sequester enough nutrition to develop a baby deer and then develop milk to feed the baby deer, those antlers might just, that might just be too much. You're, you're too much in the hole energetically. Yes. You can't afford it. Which brings extra attention to the one very famous situation of female deers that do grow antlers, reindeer. Yeah. Reindeer, both male and females, grow antlers annually. Like, they are growing them every year, and it is bizarre. It stands out among deer. And there are a few reasons as to why it might be beneficial for these females. First off, reindeer live in huge groups. Mm -hmm. The largest groups of any cervid. These are massive herds. Oh, yeah. A bunch of deer. They also live in harsh conditions. Very cold with tough, tough winters. These factors play into why it might be beneficial for females to have antlers is that it will help them compete once again, like females with horns in large herds that you now can use your antlers to fight for your resources. Right, with the thousand other reindeer nearby in the harsh conditions where you might have limited opportunities for food and such. And this makes a lot of sense, especially when you take in that female antler cycles are not synced up with males. They are out of sync. Huh. Males grow their antlers, rut, which is the period in which they're going to fight each other when their hormones get up and they they get all... Testosterone-y. Yep. And then, shortly after that, they drop their antlers. They grow antlers for the mating season. Yes. And so they will drop their antlers before winter, typically. Okay. Because they no longer need them. So... Why right. we're going to be friends now until spring? Yeah, exactly. It's fine now. <laughs> so you're not pulling a knife on me anymore. Right. <laughs> females keep their antlers through winter, typically. Pregnant females drop their antlers even a bit later than non-pregnant females, giving them a time when they have the weapons. Yeah. During the time where they need the most resources, where they are hard to find. Yeah. So in the harsh winters, they're the ones holding the big stick and all the males have to get out of their way so they can get as much food as they need to grow the babies and take care of them. That's actually super awesome. Right? That it's like, I am carrying a developing new reindeer in here. Get out of my way. Yeah. (laughs) I need that food. So (laughs) it seems to be a social dynamic and a ecological dynamic that benefits these females having antlers yeah and that the females and males are needing their antlers at different times for different reasons yes which is so cool it's not at all surprising that the uses for horns and antlers and headgear are so diverse oh yeah given how diverse the headgear itself is absolutely what's like you have uh elk that have that snow brushing part at the front of the antler that they'll use to brush snow off the grass well, and then that's awesome. You had mentioned beetles mm-hmm. and the way they're using their horns. And you've got some of them that are actually picking each other up off the ground and slamming them back down into the ground with their horns. Yeah, with their two chopstick horns. Yeah. That they are actually throwing their opponent with. Now, it has been asked if, if it works so well for reindeer, why have another female deer done this Mm -hmm. and the likely answer is that because this is a situation where the benefit outweighs the cost yes it is notable that the young of female reindeer are notably a bit smaller proportionally Mm. they are born slightly smaller than average deer to adult size probably because the 
mothers are having to use a lot of their nutrition to grow antlers. Yeah, that makes sense. So in other situations where the environment isn't so harsh right. and you're in much smaller groups. If you're a white-tailed deer, yeah. you don't need to worry about it. Why be so dramatic? I also saw one study that made the point that uh, it is often proposed that hornless females of the various groups are less aggressive. And that's why they don't need horns because they're not. You know, why do you need horns if you're not aggressive? Sure. So if you're going to run instead of fighting. Yeah. And if you're not fighting each other, you know, or whatever it is. But the paper was like, first off, there's not actually a lot of evidence for this. Secondly, it's very hard to rank aggressiveness. Right. And thirdly, there's tons of hornless females that do fight each other all the time just with hooves and some of them butting heads just without headgear. Oh, yeah. So like it, you can't uh, behavior does not seem to one to one the groups that do and don't. Well, and it's also important to keep in mind, uh, as you were just alluding to, you don't need horns or antlers to be like, I would not fight a giraffe even if it didn't have ossicones. Oh, yeah. Even if its head was perfectly smooth. (laughs) You've got a thousand other things you can do. Your foot's still the size of my face. Yeah. And you've got that (laughs) neck that you're swinging around. No, I don't want any of that. So the female, the situation of female headgear and when it is and isn't present, there are some hypotheses and there seem to be some situations that we might have figured out Mm -hmm. but overall it's still a bit of a mystery because there are bovids that have male horns and no female horns and not quite sure why in that situation they don't line up with the rest of bovids interesting so yeah it's a bit odd and it seems to be a very diverse distinction as to whether or not a female of a horned species also has horns One of the things that I always enjoy about this podcast is that every episode we pick a topic and it could be just the most evident. Here's horns and antlers, something that we're all pretty familiar with. We've seen animals at the zoo. And then the episode goes, here's a bunch of stuff about this topic and here's the parts we don't have answers for. Yes. I didn't know there were mysteries about horns and antlers. Yeah. And here we are. Yep. There's definitely aspects of headgear that are extremely over and understudied. Yeah, that makes sense. We've studied antlers a ton because they are the fastest growing vertebrate body part. Yeah. So for regeneration and osteological and developmental studies, though that's an incredibly useful anatomy to learn about. It also helps that antlers are very common in animals that live in the parts of the world where science historically has been popular for the longest time. Yep. In our North America and Europe areas, and that humans like to collect them. Yep. We also have a huge understanding of true horns because bovids are one of our main domesticated groups. Yes. Also, humans like to collect them. Yep. <laughs> so. Unfortunately. <laughs> Antlers are great because you just go pick them up off, yeah. the, uh, off the floor. If you want to collect a bovid horn, you have to do something mean to a bovid. Yep. Or you have to wait. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Don't worry. Old Bessie will be up on that mantle next year, I'm sure of it. <laughs> So, yeah, there's some areas we know very well, but then, like, pronghorns, we still don't know. Like, their females have pronghorns that are smaller than the males, and even when the male sheds, the it's still larger than the male than the female's keratin sheath. Huh. Like, the male's definitely the dominant one, and the female doesn't seem to use it for protection, because this is one of the fastest mammals on the planet, so they just run. Mm-hmm. So they're not defending themselves from predators. And they don't tend to seem to fight other females. So we're not sure why they have them. So there are some situations where we have a really good understanding of this group. And then others where we, we're we still needing to research. Fascinating. It's great. Now that's the diversity 
today. We haven't even dipped into the ones we don't have anymore. Yeah, and there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of horns in the fossil record. So let's look into the fossil record and talk about all the completely bizarre headgears that we used to have. Just as today, many, many groups of animals have decided, I want weapons on my face. This is true of the fossil record as much or more so. There are tons of bizarre, some similar to groups today, some completely unique uh, that we don't see an analog to today throughout the fossil record. We, of course, are not going to be able to touch on every single group with cool headgear. No. So if we miss your favorite fossil group that has awesome ornaments on its head, let us know and we can hopefully talk about it in a later episode. But first we're going to start out with dinosaurs are one of the groups that did this a bunch in different groups. Long before mammals started doing it in the big way they do it today. Dinosaurs were full of horns. There's all sorts of horns in dinosaurs. And one of the interesting things with them is both predators and and herbivores yeah. were doing it, which we don't see today. There are not many predatory animals today that have headgear. I think the Jackson's chameleon is the only one we've mentioned. Yeah. And like there are like horned frogs. Yeah. Which are kind of horned. Yeah. They're they, more bumpy. They've got spiky bits. Like yeah. there's the ones that actually have like legitimate spikes over the eyes. Right. But, but there's no, like, horned bears no, or not, anything like that. N- no mammals are really doing that, and it's not even common in other groups as much. So dinosaurs have a huge variety in ways we don't typically see. The one group that is most famous, though, is ceratopsians. Oh, yeah. We talked about ceratopsian horns extensively in episode 87. Yeah. These are the horned dinosaurs. Triceratops, Taurosaurus, Protoceratops. Well, Protoceratops doesn't have horns, but that's <laughs> all. Those are the ceratopsians. <laughs> that's why it's proto. It's, that's yeah. right. The famous dinosaurs with typically the big frills in the back of the skull and often horns on above the eyes. Sometimes on the cheeks, mm-hmm. often on the nose, sometimes around the edge of the frill, just covered in horns and spikes. Now, these are interesting because these are very horn-like. They are bony protrusions off the face. Right. If you think of Triceratops, particularly when we're talking about like the frontal horns, the mm-hmm. horns above the eyes and the horns on the nose, yeah, that is a bony structure coming off of the bones of the skull. Yeah, and I think, at least according to one research I found, they seem to even likely develop where they fuse after their growth like a bovid horn core. And it's also regularly hypothesized that they were covered in a keratin sheath. Yeah, that's uh, you'll often see dinosaur paleontologists say they were probably covered in keratin like we see bovid horns today. Now, I don't know that we found any solid physical evidence, so that may still be a... It would make sense. It sure does seem like there should be or would be. Yeah, but I, don't, we yeah may... I don't know if there is mm-hmm. direct evidence of a keratin sheath. I'm not sure. There might be. Yeah, I couldn't find it. I, I searched for tri- for Triceratops keratin or Ceratopsian keratin sheath, yeah, yeah. and nothing came up. But if they did have keratin sheaths, that would make these... Pretty much identical to a bovid horn. Mm -hmm. So much like the chameleon, structurally a true horn, but not 
taxonomically. It's not in bovids. And they're thought to have been using them very similarly for intraspecific combat, like fighting each other yeah, with their horns. scars on the faces of fossil triceratops and ceratopsian skulls that sure do seem to match up with where a horn would hit you if you were face-to-face with another of your species. Yeah. There's also evidence, potentially, of them using it to fend off predators. Mm -hmm. So it's likely they were using their horns very much like we see horned animals using it today. So probably a pretty parallel structure, both in its anatomy and function. Then you get weird stuff like the abelisaurs, these predatory dinosaurs, very famous in South America, Carnotaurus, Majungasaurus, that had horns off the face, often above the eyes, just kind of sticking out. Yeah. Just Carnotaurus is named for that, right? Yep. Bull, Taurus. Yeah, it's got these two horns up there. And they're they're weird and just almost sticking out straight away from one another, perpendicular from the face. And we don't know what that one was doing. Yeah. Maybe that was just displaying. Mm-hmm. Or were you like swinging your head like a stiletto snake? Like yeah. you were just jabbing stuff from the side? Was it protection? You know, was it to guard you? Mm-hmm. That's another thing that a lot of horns today, antlers especially, will have parts that guard while another part is stabbing. Right. So that your stabbing bit doesn't get to my eye. Part of this is like we only have the one Carnotaurus specimen, so... Right. If we found more, maybe it would become more clear. Right. Maybe there's diversity <laughs> in them or something. But we do have strange, very horn-like, but we're not sure what it's doing because it is in such a... It's in a group that we're not used to, a big predator, and it's not shaped the way that a lot of horns you think of would be shaped. And then you get real weirdos like pachycephalosaurs mm-hmm. that have that dome. These are the, your dome-headed dinosaurs, but also will have horn structures around the dome Yeah, that aren't even facing forward. It's just sort of a spiky margin... Like, like a the, Hot Topic collar. Right. <laughs> and sometimes they'll have spiky bits on the nose. Yeah. Little horny spikes on the nose. And so are these similar to like a horny devil lizard, where it's, these are spikes just to make you look spiky? Mm-hmm. Or are they displays or the more ornate your spikes, another male pachycephalosaur knows not to mess with you? Right. Or is this to dissuade a big predator from biting you on the face? So yeah, no, that's going to poke me in the gums. I don't want to... Right. I... That one's so far away from... We don't have anything that has a domed head like that surrounded by spikes. We don't have an animal today to compare to that. So there are some headgears that fall outside of all of our our known realm for today. And then there's a bunch of other dinosaur... Like they're uh, obviously ankylosaurs, episode mm-hmm, 69, mm-hmm. that have spiky bits. And sometimes they have kind of horns on the back of the skull. Yeah, You've got ceratosaurs, which are your meat-eating dinosaurs with a horn on their nose. Yes. That's just doing a horn thing. Some bony protrusion. Even you've got things like tyrannosaurs, which have these little... Uh, often they're called a boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of like horns above the eyes just a little bump that i i think and you can correct me if i'm wrong feel similar to the quote horns that we see on some crocs today that's exactly what i was gonna say that where it is not a separate outgrowth structure it's just a rugose the bumpy pitted overgrown section almost where it's just a bit of the bone that is especially bumpy and 
bumpy in a direction. Yeah, it's kind of like a little spur of yeah. bone. And that it makes a, a kind of horn-ish thing. There are horned crocodiles that have very notable protrusions at the back of the head, but likely were just still covered in skin, just like the rest of a crocodile's head. But yeah. there would have been bumps there. So there's there's horn, there's true horns, there's things that are very analogous to true horns, and then there are things that we just call horns because they kind of a little bit look like a horn. Yeah, there's just face bone stuff that's doing weird, maybe decorative, maybe it's structural, maybe it's defensive. You know, if you have a thicker bit of horn there above the eye, it's just good to have. There's a lot of weird things going in the fossil record, and it gets very tricky because... Headgear today is used for so many different things, and we can't observe the uses of these headgears in the past. Right. And some of them don't even match up with ones we have today, so it can get very tricky to be like, was this useful, or is this just something you, you had because it's... Right. There's some other weird reason it's there. Well, then there's like the Ceratopsian Aeneasaurus, which has a nasal horn that curves forward and down. Yeah. Kind of? Like, what are you doing with that? It's, is that... Are you no longer using that as a weapon or... Yeah, is that just display or are you doing something very strange? Very specific. That we just don't know what it was. Yeah. I feel like it would be like if we found, you know, a hornbill bird skull, which would have their big exaggerated, like, banana crest on the top <laughs> of their head. If we didn't have those today and we found one in the past, it, I would I would definitely be like, what were you using that for? Because that... Were you fighting with that? What was that doing? Because yeah. it's so weird without having a living example of it. Yeah. You also get some that are just kind of goofy looking. Sharingosaurus. <laughs> this is a Triassic archosauromorph, so not a dinosaur. But it, it is a very large reptile, kind of lizardy shape in that it had the four legs on the ground, long tail, a kind of longish neck with a short face, and then two... Sort of bullhorns, but they just curved straight forward, not like out to the side and forward. Just it looks, it looks like a kid drew this. Yes, this animal. It's a bizarre creature. <laughs> but they are horns, and I've even seen it suggested that they likely would have been uh, keratinized with a sheath. So once again, we have a very horn-like thing and a very weird creature. Yeah, from early, early Triassic, so early in the age of the dinosaurs. Also, since we mentioned crocs, I feel the need to fill a gap in our previous discussion <laughs> and mention the rhinoceros viper. Yes, absolutely. Which are snakes that have, I believe they're just scales mm -hmm. that are long and pointy that look like horns on the front of their nose. Which makes it more similar to a rhino horn. Yes. Where it is, is not a bony horn. Scale structure, which is also interesting because that's the kind of horn like with rhinos, that would not preserve in fossils. Yes, If it's absolutely. just scaly or keratinous, that's not going to typically be fossilized, so we have to hope there's some sign on the bone that it was there. Otherwise, we won't know that they had that. So, paleoartists, just start putting... Start putting horns on all your snakes. Just start... I want Titanoboa. <laughs> that's right. The horns all the way down the body. <laughs> yeah, no, you get some structures that are really, really similar, but also just structurally not at all the same and the point that it wouldn't fossilize is excellent yeah there are a bunch of fossil groups that we look at especially of modern horned species and modern horned groups that we have to debate about mm -hmm. 
were they horned? Fossil rhinos, this comes up all the time. Yeah. I like Again, in episode 129, we talked about some of the ways we try to find clues to if these species had horns. Yeah. And sometimes we don't know. Sometimes it's... it. Maybe you had an itty-bitty one, and it doesn't leave the traces we would typically see from a, ro- a robust horn. So it can be very difficult to even know if something was horned, you know, in quotations. Right. Horned. Now, most of our lists beforehand were mammals, and there are tons of horned mammals in the fossil record. Some right. of which related, some very unrelated to our horned groups today. Of course, there are fossil rhinos, as we just mentioned, and... Also mentioned in the rhino episode, brontotheres and titanotheres. Oh, yeah. Are famous. Which are also perissodactyls. Yeah. And, and similar things. Yeah, and rhinos we talked about. Brontotheres, we talked about uinetotheres. Yep, yep, we talked yep. about arsenoetherium, which who knows what that is. Yeah. Uh-uh. So if you want a discussion of those rhino-like things and their horns, go check out episode 129. Absolutely. The, a lot of your titanotheres had bony protrusions off the nose. So obviously there was some sort of horn structure there. How much of it was maybe covered by extra skin stuff, we don't know. Right. And Arsinoetherium was one that has bony horns. Yeah. But beyond that, we don't know much about them. Yeah, we don't know what else there would have been. And speaking of weird nasal horns, there is a rodent with nose horns, paired nose horns, very similar to a titanotheer. Yeah. Ceratogallus, the horned gopher. An extinct group of rodents. These are from the Miocene here in North America that had two nose horns, which is just bizarre for so many reasons. Like a brontothere. First off, this is unique among rodents. This is the only rodent to have headgear like this. Like we have rodents with exaggerated teeth. Sure. Like the naked mole rats have teeth that stick outside their face. And we talked about those in tusks, but this is the only one with a horn-like structure, and this is a bony horn, likely covered with at least skin, but maybe other keratin or something. So only rodent. It's also the smallest horned mammal that we know of. Oh, yeah. At least for bony horns. Mm -hmm. And evidence from the group show that this was a fossorial, a digging group of rodents, making it one of the only horned fossorial animals we know of. Burrowers. There was a, a study came out recently that Dr. Samuels was on, Josh, who's over at the Gray Fossil Site, mm-hmm. did a, a study on these. And I think it was that study or an article that was written about that study where the question of what were they using these horns for came yep. up. And I, I think there may have even been artwork of this, or maybe it was just the discussion, the idea of these animals coming out of their burrow horns first <laughs> as a defensive yes. behavior. Yep. That either I'm coming out horns first or I'm backing in horns first. And if you try to come in after me, the fir- you're coming at- straight at the horns. Yeah, instead of running into my burrow, I'm going to back into it. Yes. As if you mess with the gopher, you get the horns. <laughs> <laughs> and yet the, the question as to why they have horns is important because we don't have a single digging horned animal alive today no. like this at all. There's one other animal that has horns also on the nose that seems to be a digger, and it is a fossil armadillo. Peltophilus, which is also Miocene, but South American, uh, this would have been like a decent size, a dog-sized armadillo. Uh, That seems to be a digger, which is very common among armadillos, but also has two little nose horns. Weird. So only two fossil groups that we've ever found 
have both of these features together. So it's been asked, why do you have horns? A lot of early assumptions suggested that they might have used the horns to dig. Right. That you're pushing dirt out of the yeah. way with your horns. A digging method called head lifting, where you're basically using your face like a bulldozer, like the bucket on the front of a tractor to shovel yeah, yeah. dirt out of your way. Which is how a lot of burrowing reptiles, yes. like a lot of lizards and snakes that are burrowers, will have wedge-shaped faces because mm-hmm. they're pushing through the sediment. Absolutely. Now, this is not known from uh, any North American animals, it said, but there are a couple of fossil groups it is hypothesized for. So it is a potential digging method. A bunch of the researchers I found, though, said it doesn't seem like it's likely that the positioning on the face, the structure of the nasal bone, and the anatomy of the neck don't seem to really support. Yeah. That, that their their sweep of this shovel face would have been very inefficient. Yeah. Also, why would you have two? Right. So they don't think that's likely it. Defense is what they most of the research I could find leaned on at the end and one of the reasons they pointed out is that this is a decent sized rodent and that as it got larger it likely would have needed to go out of its burrow to forage more often so it may have just needed more defense because it was exposed more frequently yeah there are also crazy horns from our familiar groups our ruminants have been horned for quite some time and in the past there are cousins of today's groups that went way crazier than today's examples go. <laughs> yeah, so we have fossil antelopes mm-hmm. and fossil deer with antlers and like all the modern stuff we see, and then there's these other ones. Yes, giraffes. They're in giraffe a day. There's a group known as Chancetherium, made up of multiple species that are cousins of giraffes, described as more moose or antelope-like, so not quite as long necks, a bit more. A bit more reasonable body proportions. (laughs) These also had ossicones, but while today's ossicones are like, as I described them, baby's first headgear, very simple, just little horn knobs that fused your head. These ossicones are crazy. They're branched with multiple prongs. Some of them are fanned with ridges and bumps. They are extremely diverse and much more akin to like the pronghorns here in North America, or even some of your more uh, simpler antlers and deer. I have a picture so I can show David some of an artistic reconstruction of some of these. Oh, weird. Yeah, it's like a horn antler. Yes. It's like trying to make an antler-like structure out of your bony ossicones. Absolutely. So we saw diverse and complex ossicones, which are typically, I saw them listed so many times as the simplest form, the simplest form. Right. Today, today <laughs> in this group that survived, in other giraffids, they were quite diverse and quite complex. Cool. We see a very similar thing in Antilla The pronghorns, extinct groups, cousins of the, today's pronghorn, also had much more complex prongs, which actually look fairly similar to those ossicones. Oh, yeah. These are also often branched, multi-pronged, with a couple of structures sometimes of varying shapes going up to six times with six points coming out total one particularly is notable ramoceros which is a very small cousin of the pronghorn likely also very nimble that had long forked horns prongs like the antlers of a deer but one was always notably larger than the other one of the prongs or like 
the, the left, left or, or the right. right. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> and it it seems that it shifted. Either the left or the right would be up to three to four times larger than the other prong. I can only assume that this is to help them run in efficient circles. Right? Weird. It just looks like an antler of a deer, but one is itty bitty and the other one is normal sized. Yeah, well, it looks like it's wrong. Right. It looks like one of them is regrowing. Yes, exactly. That's something happened or that you're developed strangely and you're off balance but this is consistent throughout this group and i did not find an explanation as to what we think it might be doing with that i saw one guess that it could be an example of handedness sure sure like left or right handed but with your headgear so maybe you're doing something you're fighting with a style that only uses one prong external asymmetry is always so weird it's always a little unnerving of like i don't like it what happened that's a, yeah why, why are you wrong like that? someone explain please why, why, this deer and crabs yes. what are you doing being mis misshapen you're all uh, unaligned huh gross <laughs> you see also if you go back to our tusks episode in 107 you'll hear me have very similar problems about narwhals yes absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. Here, this is our narwhal of the land. (laughs) (laughs) There is also a group of artiodactyls, not alive today, an extinct group that was very famous for headgear. The Protoceratids, known from the Eocene to late Miocene. These are famous for intricate and elaborate and many formed headgears that are once again distinct from all the other groups. So this is a fifth artiodactyl line of headgear that stands out from the others. Yeah, I think protoceratids are the ones that are often called horned deer. Yes. Uh, and they're not deer deer, but they would have looked like a deer, but would, with these sort of horn-like structures. Exactly. A deer with a long face. So mm-hmm. like, if you put a, a kind of horsey face on a deer body and then put two horns above the eyes and some horns on the nose. Yep. You've got a protoceratid. Yep. I believe we have uh, hints of one of these at the Grey Fossil <gasps> site. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> these are often four-horned animals. Two above the orbits, two on the nose. Some have very small horns. Some, they are, you know, all about the same size. Others have very large horns up above the eyes and small horns down front. While you have others who have... Smaller horns above the eyes and long horns on the nose. One very famous uh, genus is Synthetoceros. This is probably the one that will come up if you Google this group because they had their paired nose horns had fused at the base and grow up into a long stalk that then branches at the tip like a slingshot. Right. And it's just so ridiculous looking. They are basically crested. Yes. It's just all this ornamentation on all these different parts. It may, it, it's just a, another answer. It's artiodactyl evolution was full of instances where they went, what could we do with our faces that would be ridiculous, but not like all those other guys? Yeah. <laughs> not like that. Original. <laughs> Us. I've seen these compared to ossicones. Because uh, they of the way they are structured and suggested that they may have just been covered in hair. But I've also seen them compared to horns. So I don't know if there's if that's still just being looked into or if there is right, if more a of consensus. a consensus. 
but these are horn-like structures, ossicone-like structures, but elaborate like a bovid horn, just all over the face, though. <laughs> I love the trajectory of this episode that we started with horns and antlers. Here's what a true horn is. Here's what an antler is. Here are all the ways that they're different. These are the two categories. And we have spent the rest of the episode showing that those two categories are nonsense. No. <laughs> that there's also a hundred other options. <laughs> that headgear, like most things in nature, is a spectrum that you can just slide along. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> now, we do have fossil true antlers. And these come in a huge range. Early antlers look very different than antlers today. Many of them with very long pedicles. So the permanent structure was long and protruding from the head. Like an ossicone. Like an ossicone. But then the antler would still grow on the end of that. Oh, cool. With a branching structure coming off of this stalk. There are plenty of deer that had antlers as as we'd recognize them. There's one, though that I feel I would rightly be persecuted for if I didn't mention. Yeah. Megaloceros, the giant deer. Megaloceros giganteus. Sometimes called the Irish elk, but it's not an elk. So right. a lot of more recent stuff just calls it the, the giant deer. Also not exclusively Irish. No. It is very famous from Ireland. That's where uh, most of the specimens are known from. But it is known from a much wider range. This was found during the late Pleistocene. From North Africa all the way to eastern China. Yeah, this was a common species for the last number of thousands of years. The reason this species is so famous is that it has the largest antlers ever. Now, when I say largest antlers ever, I mean the largest antlers of any deer living today, like larger than any today, larger than any other fossil antlers we found, Mm -hmm. and largest for proportion to body size. Right. This is the biggest set of antlers period that we have yet found they don't get bigger than this these antlers can span three and a half meters from tip to tip tip to tip (laughs) so like 11 12 feet long yes this has a wingspan (laughs) (laughs) it has a wingspan man we just did the vultures episode that is a wingspan about that of the largest winged birds today (laughs) yep It's likely that in total mass, these would have been 40 to 45 kilograms in weight. (laughs) That's a preposterous amount of antler. Absolutely. Which is over 100 pounds. These are ridiculous antlers. That is too much antler. These are also palmated antlers, which is the term used for things like moose antlers. Right. Where it's not just a branch. Mm -hmm. It's flattened at parts. Yes. It's got webbing. In between the branches, Mm. like our palm has the flat area and then the tips of our fingers. That is palmated. These are a wide, flat set of antlers with points at the end. Right. So you and your family could go sledding on them. Absolutely. Together. Sit, sit nestled inside. All all comfy together. (laughs) (laughs) These antlers have been the source of actually a notable amount of controversy. Both scientific debate and actual controversy. (laughs) On one of the main scientific discussions, it has gone back and forth whether or not these antlers could have been used like most deer use their antlers. Could you fight with something this big? Right. Is this practical? Is this unwieldy? Yes. Is it even structured for that? Part of the reason that question comes up is they're real big. But also, their orientation is odd. Most antlers point upward. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they grow out. And if you put your hands palms facing up and then have your fingers pointing to the ceiling, that's how most antlers grow. Right. And then you tilt your head forward. Yeah. And you point, you push the points towards your opponent. Megaloceros' antlers are grown with the palms flats with your thumbs pointing up. So the flat uh, of like the antler hands. is facing forward, but, and it's hard to do this. You'd have to cross your hands. Your fingers would be bending backward. The tines were facing backwards. Huh. So really it's rotated the antlers back 90 degrees with the flat, the bottom flat that would typically be the bottom mm-hmm. facing forward and all the tines curving back away. So it doesn't seem to be oriented for the typical yeah. antler usage, which means a lot have suggested that it was just display. Both because it could have been that the forces of combat were too much for things this big to survive. Right. Or for the neck of the animal right. to maintain. Uh, yeah, no, I, I can't put a battle axe on my head and then swing right. it around without just hurting myself. Yeah, you're just going to break your neck. And since they're oriented that way, you can see the entire flat, the entire size of the antler, just looking straight ahead. Right. So it looks, it feels kind of like a ceratopsian frill. Exactly. With this big flat area of head. All that real estate space for advertising how big and impressive you are. Yep. Your so, advertisement here. Yes. <laughs> so a lot of people have suggested that they were just for display combat. You know that there may have still been interactions between males where they had to do the correct movements or the correct display. You know, right. you can't just stand there, but you have to cough or bark or right. hit, stomp your foot. But they probably weren't sparring with the antlers. Exactly. But more recent research has found that they might have been more useful for combat than they seem. Research testing the forces that these could actually withstand found that they would not have been good for pushing. They couldn't have taken a lot of stresses pushing on each other or ramming into each other. But they were good at taking forces from twisting. Hmm. So once the antlers are locked together... They would have been quite good at wrestling with one another. All right. They also noted that there is a front section to the antler that curves downward, seemingly protecting the eyes, which seems like an adaptation you would have if you were fighting each other. Yeah, yeah. So it may have been that they were fighting, but it wasn't the violent clash that a lot of deer go into, where a lot of deer come together and then lock and wrestle. Mm-hmm. This may have been a we lock and wrestle. So it may have been a bit more, uh, one paper called it predictable and constrained combat. Right. Where Very ritual. Yes, it's it's more like a thumb wrestle right. than an actual <laughs> wrestling match. We're going to get into position and you put your hand here and I put mine here and now we go. Right, right. But it does seem like they could have actually been fighting with these giant canoes. Interesting. But by far, one of the reasons these antlers are so famous is because they became a source of major controversy on just the topic of evolution. Yes. These became, I saw it uh, worded as a rallying point for anti-Darwinists. Back in the day. Back in the day, because these antlers were taken as an example of orthogenesis, which is a now debunked idea of evolution that things evolve in a direction regardless of the benefits. Right. You just, this structure gets bigger and bigger or more and more ornate or longer and longer or whatever it is. Whatever it's doing. Until it can no more do that. We actually brought this up 
not in another main episode, but this came up in our Pokemon paleontology episode. Yes. <laughs> because it is referenced mm-hmm. kind of in the games. Absolutely. And so a lot of people started using these antlers of like, uh-huh, look at that. Those antlers are obviously too big to be practical. Right. So these antler, these deer evolved past where they should have. They went too far. And that's probably why they're extinct. They couldn't walk between the trees. They couldn't fit between the trees. A lot of them claim that it was nutritional, that now you're growing too big of antlers. Mm. You're using up too much of your nutrition on that, and your body couldn't keep up. And that the group died out because their antlers out-evolved their usefulness. Yes, they evolved themselves into a corner of extinction. This is not at all held to be the case nowadays. That's not how evolution works. No. We now know. There are plenty of other reasons for this group to have gone extinct. They went extinct at the end of the Pleistocene. Episode 25. When a lot of big mammals went extinct. Yes, even the ones without giant antlers. Absolutely. We've already shown that these antlers seem like they were functional. Mm-hmm. There are, There's plenty of evidence that these antlers could have and would have been used. And as you said, that's not how evolution works. You don't just evolve a structure because you're evolving a structure. You go, well, I already started. And right. mama didn't raise no quitter, so I'm going to finish. <laughs> no, you, you, if evolution drives things that are useful and does not select things that are a hamper. So if the antlers did become a major issue just because of their size, then the size would halt or reverse. Unless there was some environmental change that suddenly made things inconvenient that, up, oh, things shifted suddenly and now smaller antlers are more beneficial and you can't get them small enough quick enough. Yep. That is how a structure like that could be your downfall, but not because it got out of hand, the situation you were in changed. Right. Now that we've talked about some of the examples of fossil horns and modern horns, one question we haven't answered is how and why do we have horns? You know, and how and why do they function the way they function? You know, how did these structures evolve? And once again, a decent amount of debate has fallen into this category, specifically in ruminants, how many times did they evolve horns? Right. This has gone back and forth via across multiple hypotheses and multiple reconstructions from every single structure having its own origin to two origins and a couple of losses to a single origin with losses to a different single origin with different, like, depending on which decades you're looking at it, you can find papers ascertaining very confidently different situations with how ruminants got their horns. Part of the reason why multiple origins is such a popular idea is anatomically they are very diverse. Right, as we've discussed. Yes, they are not, they don't seem to be similar structures when you look at how they form in the body and how even how they're used. This is also supported by the fact that we see members of these groups all showing up at their earliest in the Miocene already with their distinct headgear represented in each group. It seems like this difference goes back very, very far in this group that you would have found ossicone-like structures in the earliest members of the Giraffids, horn-like structures in the earliest members of the Bovids, antler-like structures in the earliest deer, and pronghorn-like structures in the earliest Antelicaprids. So it seems like, yeah, no... those are already distinct and notable and today they are used very differently. So 
four different origins. More recent research looking into genetics, though, has found that there's actually quite a bit of overlap. The genetic expression and pathways in the growth of each of these headgears actually has a lot of similarities. Interesting. So it could still be that there are individual origins, but that the mechanism is ancestral. Right. They are based on the same foundational genetic pieces. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that shifted this was a reorganization that found that musk deer and water deer, both of which are two extant headgearless ruminants. Modern day groups, no horns or antlers. Yeah. Originally were placed much lower in the group's tree of life that they were early branches off. And so, yeah, you, know, you did not develop horns while everyone else did. Right. Now with more recent groupings, we see that they are actually quite high up. Right. So more likely their ancestors were horned. And they've lost them. Mm-hmm. Which leans a bit more toward probably, and this is what most research today you'll find is leaning toward, at least right now, that probably all of these crazy ruminant horns, ossicones, horns, antlers, and pronghorns, had a single origin and then diversified like crazy yeah. into extremely different structures. Now, as for why they evolved horns, uh, there is not one single hypothesis. Uh, but I did find uh, this is a, a 1966 <laughs> that laid out a potential way you could get horn-like structures that step-by-step makes sense why they would evolve such ornate anatomy. They suggest that you start with primitive artiodactyls that are just budding heads. Uh, right. which we see that, like mentioned with hornless females, that budding oh. heads does not require horns. No, and there are animals that do it that are not horned that are not artiodactyls that yeah. are not mammals it's there it, are fish that butt heads yes like this is a pretty common behavior it is a very easy thing to do if i'm looking at someone i don't like to just throw my forehead just at them. a headbutt <laughs> so you start with butting heads and eventually this becomes this this is hypothesized to have become more useful when you got bigger that mm-hmm. starting from a smaller forest dwelling artiodactyl and getting into a more open landscape bigger artiodactyl now i can throw some weight behind this headbutt And so it's actually a much more useful form of combat. They suggested that then you would have seen that combat would have been focused on broadsiding, hitting their body. Mm -hmm. And then it's helpful to have protuberances to punch them. Hurt a little bit. Yeah, I want to make sure they remember this. Get you in the ribs with my knuckle. (laughs) And that then the defense that could have been used is to catch your head with my head. Mm -hmm. I don't let you punch me in the body. I'm going to catch you with my protuberances. So that now you're not hitting my ribs. So now you already have a form of the head ramming, which could then shift into trying to control your head, you know, of Mm -hmm. following your head instead of just hitting it. And now you get into that wrestling, that locking in, and we're trying to, each is trying to gain control over the situation. This is where you would get the selection pressure for not just protuberances that are hard, but can grasp. Yeah. And just all sorts of different shapes and sizes. Well, it's easy to to imagine that you can start with the selection for something knobby on the head, whether it's for protection or for jabbing somebody. And then once they get big enough and now they're really useful, Mm -hmm. now there's selection for diverse shapes and sizes for different uses in protection or combat or whatnot. You also get sexual selection at this point. If females Mm -hmm. know that big horns mean a big male... Mm -hmm then they're going to 
select for bigger and bigger horns. Now there's a display function. And episode 63, we talked about just how much sexual selection can run away with anatomical features. Absolutely. Uh, They also noted that socially, this can protect the health of males in the fact that it might help you avoid combat because the horns act as a rank indicator. Like You're going to have to fight some with them, but if my horns are twice the length of yours, you can come into our group and we don't even have to fight. Right. Because I already know where you rank and you already know where I rank. And so you can actually have peaceful interactions with the majority yeah. and only your rivals do you have to fight. And I imagine it could also have a similar effect on potential predators. Yes. That it's like, yeah, look at these big horns. Don't even come over here. Yes, exactly. I, I don't even have to use these on you. You know better. Yep. Just go the other way. It's, you'll go, see that. go find an old sick one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you'll see that with deer that will present their antlers. When they feel right. threatened, they won't move towards you. They won't move away, but they'll go. Yeah. It's the deer equivalent of putting your fists <laughs> yeah, up. <laughs> yeah. Your move, buddy. Bring it on. All right. <laughs> now, we do see some trends in the evolution of these headgears as situations where it seems to evolve more often or that we see certain versions evolve. We talked about this in the Tusks episode. Episode 107. Where they found that environment and social structure actually have a lot more to do with what kind of headgear and weaponry is evolved than species or body size. Mm -hmm. It's very often been uh, in older texts thought that the bigger you got, then horns become good. Right. But there doesn't actually seem to be a lot of correlation, especially since we have lots of tiny horned and antlered species. They found that small social group and forested animals tend to get small dagger-like horns okay. that aren't going to get caught on the forest. But also, if you're in an enclosed environment and you have an encounter with a predator, it's very likely to be a close encounter. Right. You want something that you can shank that predator with. <laughs> you want an actual weapon. So a small, short dagger is more useful. While once you move into open habitat and you get a bigger body... You can support bigger, more elaborate structures, Mm -hmm. and you can now display it a long distance. Yes. So being in a larger group where that display and social hierarchy is more important and in an open environment allows you to take on bigger horns, bigger antlers, and that this seems to be a small, more solitary animal living in the forest is going to tend to have smaller headgear, but sharper, more effective Mm -hmm. headgear. Open, large-bodied, more social organisms are going to tend to have more elaborate, larger, more showy headgear. Makes sense. We also see a similar trend as to why some ungulate groups did evolve headgear and others didn't. Artiodactyls have tons of headgear. Yes. Parasodactyls, not so much. Yeah, that's your tapers and your horses. Both groups do not show basically any headgear of any kind. And never have. Nope. And then you've got your rhinos, which today our rhinos are famous for headgear. But even in the past, not all rhinos have had headgear. It is much less common for a parasodactyl to have headgear. So one of the questions is why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, horses are living very similar lives to antelopes yes. and wildebeest and things like that. And you're both ungulates. You're related. And you're big and you live in similar environments. And in depending on how far back that single origin of headgear goes in artiodactyls, it could be something that you should have the building blocks for even. Mm-hmm. So why not? 
One of the explanations that I found was that for a lot of horned artiodactyls, they're using it to defend a territory, partially for females, but also for grazing, right? You know, for food so that you can have enough food for you and your females or your herd, whatever it might be. These are ruminants, which are very, very efficient at digesting their plant matter. Parasodactyls are not. Right. And it has, was suggested that they could not maintain a small enough territory to get enough food to make defending a territory the same way effective. Interesting. So that in, not in all situations, but especially in your forested habitats, mm-hmm. that you could not have a small enough territory and get enough food as a small little horse. So having headgear to fight for that territory would be serve no purpose. Right. You just, you just wander around. Yeah. You need a wide territory because you need a larger intake of food versus yeah. a ruminant who is much more efficient at pulling nutrients out of the food they get. Interesting. Yeah. So there might be things about physiology that make having horns or not having horns practical or not helpful. Now, we say that, and it is worth keeping in mind that at least among our modern parasodactyls, rhinos do have horns. Yes. And the ones that have small horns have tusks. Yep. (laughs) And horses and tapers do not have horns, but they do have big honking front teeth. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, like, it might just be that, like, because a lot of the time with your artiodactyls, they tend to, oftentimes they don't have very Mm. substantial front teeth. Yeah, you have your tusked deers. Sure. But that's about it. And a lot of time they're even have reduced incisors Mm -hmm. and stuff. Now, obviously I have not done any research (laughs) into this, but just sort of intuitively, maybe if you can bite like a horse, (laughs) you just don't need a horn for anything. And that may be the thing (laughs) is that that headgear is not the only way to defend a territory. Right. Because we do see parasodactyls today that do defend territories. They're usually not in the same situation that we see territory defense in artiodactyls. Right. It's actually typically in a very different habitats and different situations. So we see similar behavior, but in different situations. So it may just be that you're doing it. You're just doing it in a very different way. Yeah. So it's just, you're, it, you don't need the headgear, but there is a question there of why do some herd-forming herbivores with hooves grow antlers and others don't? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of antlers, there are a ton of evolutionary questions about antlers. Antlers are by far one of the most bizarre of our modern headgears, mostly because of that growth cycle. Mm-hmm. That growth cycle is unusual. Yeah. So weird. It's extreme that's a lot of growth in a single year so when you see an elk with this these branches just like half a tree on their head that's one year growth yeah when you see a moose yes which also uh keeping in mind megaloceros yes the irish elk the big deer we were just talking about those are antlers you're growing 10 feet of antlers (laughs) a year so why why cycle why drop these incredibly nutrient-consuming and complex and useful structures, why shed them? There have been a couple of ideas to this. These are mostly just hypothesized reasons with some that have support that seem to make sense. It could be any one of these. It could be a mixture of these. This is still kind of a mystery as to why cervids, why deer evolve such an extreme anatomical cycle. One of the reasons that is very, very straightforward, I just hadn't thought of it, is that while antlers are growing, they're covered in velvet, mm-hmm. that thin layer of skin. But when they're using it, it's a dead structure. Oh, yeah. 
It is dead bone now. It's no longer growing. It's no longer healing. There's no blood supply to that exposed bone antler, which, if you are a temperate deer, protects you from frostbite. If you had long, thin, branching structures with thin, blood-filled skin covering it, right. that would be very prone to frostbite. Right. So just the same way that the tips of your fingers are often going to suffer in the cold more, just because it's farther from your core. Exactly. But your hair isn't going to get frostbite because your hair's dead. Yeah, That's dead cells. Nothing to worry about. There's nothing to kill there. So if the antler is left to die, you can survive cold environments without worrying about this structure. All right. That was one I didn't expect. Sure, sure. A lot of the explanations have to do with the fact that it is a competition structure, that this is used to compete with other males, which means you're fighting aggressively with it, which makes it prone to injury. Yep. If you break your antlers, you're going to have to heal your antlers, and you need to heal it in time for the next mating season. Right. Or else you don't get to mate that season because you got a funky one-sided antler. So if you just drop it and grow a whole new set, you always have a fresh set of weapons. Right. And especially considering that you are extremely likely to damage your antlers. Yes. This isn't like, well, yeah, you might stub your toe or you might get it. No, the, you are specifically putting these in harm's way. That's their job. <laughs> it's like if you've ever been to a batting cage, you know, like a batting cages where they have the ball shooting at you. You might not know this, but in the back of those batting cages, they have just buckets of baseball bats. Because you're going to break those bats. Hitting baseball after baseball. I worked at an arcade that had a batting cage. We'd break a baseball bat like two or three times a week. Wow. Someone would just snap aluminum baseball bats because hitting baseball or softball over and over, you're going to break that thing. So that antler, that's its job. Its job is to go out there and get hurt. Yes. So that the rest of you doesn't. Exactly. So if you just drop the old pair... And you get don't have a to worry new one. about healing. You don't have to worry about weird regrowing issues. Yep. So none of that comes into effect. It also means that you can grow a better set. Yeah. You I was thinking that bigger. When, before you said they mm-hmm. keep getting bigger, it means you get a refresh. You yes. get a reset. St- otherwise, you'd have to continually be growing it. So you'd have to be using it while also growing the structure. Right. And if it's continuously growing and continuously getting hurt... Right, go back to episode 84, where we talked with Laura about pathologies. Yeah. It's hard to grow around injuries. Injuries will really mess with the way that bone grows. So it might just be worth, like, the cost-benefit analysis might just shake out in favor of, you know what, just scrap the whole thing and do another one. I also saw things that just noted that if they were, if they stayed living structures and were covered with velvet, that this also means that there's nerve endings. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah like ouch now it's gonna hurt because yeah. velvet is an extremely sensitive and nerve-filled structure now some people may want be asking why isn't this all true for bovid horns as well mm-hmm. uh, and it's because they're a different structure the antler is bone coming out the bovid horn has bone in the middle but the outside is dead material the right. keratin sheath is like hair and fingernails which is dead cells so they don't have to worry about it getting damaged because they will just keep growing it like we grow our fingernails. You actually have growth layers yep. in a horn that you can use to age the animal. So they will just continue to grow bigger and bigger horn sheaths as they grow. But if it gets damaged, well, they'll just keep growing it. Like that damage isn't going to go away, but they will continue to grow it and 
it will get worn away as it grows. And they are simpler structures. They are just a single prong, a single shaft, not these branching intricate shafts that are very likely going to snap or get tangled, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. and break. A horn's a much simpler, sturdier structure typically, so you don't run into the same issues from one to the other. Yeah. The other question that often comes up is, how did you evolve? Like, how did this start? Yeah. And spoilers, we don't have a, a great answer. But originally, and, and traditionally, the idea was that there would have been permanent antlers. That the proto-antlers, which is often a term you'll see used for these, were permanent skin-covered structures. Mm-hmm. and Like just a complex osicone. Yeah. And then they slowly, step-by-step, step, evolved and developed that cycle of loss and regrowth. This is for... This was thought for a few reasons. One, early Miocene antlers, uh, the earliest antlers we have, lack something called a burr. A burr is a ring of knobbly bone around the circumference of the pedicle, where the antler grows from. And this is, in modern groups, has often been considered a necessary part and an indication of that regrowth. And these don't have that burr. A lot of them don't have any... It's just smooth. There's no bumpy transition from the pedicle to the antler so it doesn't seem like they were losing them without this structure the pedicle as i mentioned earlier was also vastly different it was a long pedicle instead of a short little stump with antlers on the tip we do have deer like this today the munjack has a similar antler setup and i'm gonna show david this picture again because it looks like forks and garden equipment Oh, yeah, weird. With a long shaft, a long handle, and then your branching antler, usually much top. smaller, up at the top. Yeah. Also in the Munjack, we see that tusk, and that was also more common in these early deer. So it was thought that these proto-antlers would have been permanent structures or more permanent. You know, that maybe there was some sort of cycling going, but it wasn't the cycle of today, that it was a less regular But more recently, there's been a couple of findings and a couple of people pointing out that that doesn't necessarily mean they weren't shedding those antlers. First off, there's deer today that will not develop a burr but still shed their antlers. So that structure is not necessary for cycling the antlers. There is also a morphological study that looked at the surfaces, the seal between the antler and the pedicle, and found the same porous structure of bone that we see in today's deer that indicates bone growth and blood and nutrients passing between the pedicle and the antler. Interesting. So it seems like this weird, bizarre feature of deer of dropping your antlers and regrowing in a year was likely present in the earliest antlered deers. It's just a thing they've been doing for a long time. There there were never proto-antlers, at least of the ones we have, found Mm -hmm. fossils of, that they've just been doing the antler thing. They were just shaped weird. You were just dropping off the tip and then the pedicles got shorter and shorter and the end got more and more elaborate. And that was when you, earlier in the episode, when you mentioned the longer pedicles, that was my first thought was, was there, was it more common early on that you were just growing a little tip at the Mm -hmm. end it's like all right i'm just gonna regrow the spiky part at the end or something like that and then over time it became 
the bulk of the antler was that part that grows and regrows. Yeah, and that seems to be the more likely case. Instead of it being that antlers were permanent and then they started dropping them, it's that you've been dropping them, but they've gotten more and more complex. Elaborate, yeah. And you're dropping and growing more and more. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Antlers are weird through and through, which makes them a perfect set of headgear to end the episode on. Of course. This has been a, a ton of fun, and there's a huge amount in this discussion that we could talk more about. And right. This has been a small percentage oh, of yeah. the conversation to be had around horns and antlers. So as usual, let us know if there's a set of headgear we didn't mention that you feel we overlooked. Oh, yeah. This episode's fun because, as we mentioned throughout, we've actually talked about a bunch of this stuff before. Yes. We did ceratopsians, we did rhinos, so some of this we have overlaps in other episodes. Absolutely. But before we wrap up the episode, we have one section left. As we mentioned early on, we have our Patreon, and one of the benefits of being a patron with us at certain levels is that you can ask us questions that we will then answer here on the podcast. So we have a question for you all today. What's our question, David? Today's question is, so there is a category of questions that will come up, and Will knows this. When <laughs> you are science communicating and you're talking to, the, to any audience, especially kids, there is a category of questions, which is the questions that sound like they're not serious questions, which are tons of fun to answer in a serious way. Yes. This is one of those. Yep. Zabby asks, which dinosaur species do you believe had the most foul-smelling feces? <laughs> <laughs> so which dinosaurs would have left the stinkiest poos? Yes. <laughs> this is a fantastic question. And yeah, it's interesting because I tried to look up, like, do we have, like, has there been research into smelliest poops? Right. And there's lots of articles talking about smelliest poops, but I couldn't find anyone who's like studied poo smell, poo smell <laughs> rating levels. But I, there are a couple of at least mostly anecdotal bits of knowledge that I've heard over and over again about smelly poops. Mostly it's that predators tend to have smellier poops than herbivores yeah i've heard that too yeah i'm sure this varies predator to predator quite a bit right uh big predators i've heard it quite often especially mammalian predators and the reason i've seen given more often than not is that a predator's poop is full of proteins and fats and lipids all of which are very prone to rotting and smelling while a herbivores poo is full of fiber and often not as much moisture mm -hmm. so it's it's kind of you know not exactly but it's mulched with a bit of chemical reaction going on mulched plant material which has a smell right but doesn't but, smell like a dead body right so we're probably looking for predators almost certainly uh, i'm sure a big sauropod a big long neck dinosaur's huge pile of poop <laughs> Would smell quite a bit just for its volume. Sure, sure. But like ounce for ounce, probably a predator's would have more smell. Yeah. And so that like any predatory dinosaur could potentially leave behind smelly poo. Mm -hmm. But it stands to reason that the more they are producing, the more smell you're going to get. Yeah, I'd assume. So if you have something like Tyrannosaurus or like your big Abelisaurus or your big... Uh, Carcharodontosaurs, those are probably going to leave just a whole lot of odorous, pungent uh, droppings around. Yep. 
I saw one anecdote when I was looking this up of a person who was watching a live stream, uh, like Serengeti documentary style thing where they were filming, but they were live discussing what they were filming and they were parked next to a, next to a carcass with a bunch of lions chowing down and the narrator was talking and then one of the lions relieved itself and the wind shifted <laughs> and they said that they had to move the car because the narrator couldn't continue talking because they were so, <laughs> they were gagging on the scent of how bad it was. Oh man. So yeah, I, so a big that, predator. That's our bet. <laughs> the other note about poo smells is that for many species, it's also used for communication. Yes. Uh, so the smellier it is, mm-hmm. the better it is for communication. There are different animals that have been noted that their feces, the smell, like the chemical signature, indicates things about that individual. Uh, right. This was noted in white rhinos that a, a female's droppings, if a male cups up and sniffs it, will tell them things like the age of the rhino that dropped it, the sex of the rhino that dropped it, their general health, and what reproductive state they're in. Yeah, yeah. So, like, it's a, it's a calling card. It's a... This is my business card. It's like wolves marking their area with urine. Yeah. And this is especially useful if you are trying to communicate from over long distances, if you're maintaining a big territory. So once again, large bodied, solitary living animals. Mm -hmm. So a big predator, like a tiger. Yes. Right. So if you had big dinosaurs, like we often think of T-Rex and things like that as being mostly solitary keeping large territories if you're using your poop if it doubles as communication then yeah that even ups the smell factor a bit more now you want it to be smelly yes you want to be full of chemicals to smell yes this is my house so yeah uh a and this could either be to determine it don't come here i've Mm -hmm. marked it with my poop this is my house or it could be hey females right or hey males or hey males smell my poop Come find me because we yes. are 50 miles apart. Yeah, this is a thing for you get this with uh, animals today. Like I, I saw a discussion about this with I think it was clouded leopards. Yes. Mm-hmm. But this is how most of their communication happens because they're just so sparse in their landscape that they are communicating with basically never seeing each other. Yeah. So like so. they have to track each other. Yes. Through scent marks. So if we want, if we get to choose one, uh, add this to the list of things that T-Rex is famous for. Yeah. Possibly also smelly poops. Absolutely. <laughs> I would also love it if there are some small predators that just also are incredibly solitary and also... Like the ri- skunks of the dinosaur world. Yeah. Or the, like, what if there are clouded leper equivalent <laughs> dromaeosaurs that also lived up in the mountains and also yeah. were very far apart, but they, you know, they weren't big. But so they have to leave these stinker droppings everywhere so that hopefully they can find a mate. Great questions, Abby. Thank you very much. <laughs> it was a lot of fun looking that up. Thanks, as always, to all of our patrons and to our requesters. Thank you so much for your support. Don't forget that next month, June, is Croc Month. We're going to be doing all sorts of stuff for Croc Month, so keep your eyes out on our social media and the Discord and the Patreon. And for bonus episodes... And then in July, it's going to be Snake Month, so keep an eye out for all the same stuff. It's going to be a big ol' extravaganza. Yeah, next month, best month of the year after Christmas. Also, we will have uh, Silver Screen Science in June because of that new uh, dinosaur movie that's going to be coming out. Yeah, starring one of the stinkiest poopers, I hear. Uh, That's what I've heard.
As usual, you can get in contact with us through all the social medias and usual ways. And if there's a topic you want us to talk about, let us know. If you want to send us stuff, we have our address in the description. And with that, we'll wrap up this discussion of headgear and smelly poops. We release episodes every fortnight, so there'll be another one coming soon. So check in then, and bye, I guess. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.